Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. May Brussel on her radio program gives her reaction to the murder of John Lennon. For World Watchers International with Mae Brussel, who for over 17 years has investigated and exposed political conspiracies worldwide. World Watchers International originates at KLRB Carmel, California. Here's Mae. Good evening. This is Mae Brussel in Carmel, California. I'm going to spend the next three weeks consecutively on John Lennon, the murder of John Lennon, the cold-blooded gangland slaying of John Lennon. I'll talk this evening about his political and controversial life and the behavior that cost his life. Next week I'll talk about the methods to conceal political assassinations as applied specifically to John Lennon and similar patterns to other assassinations I've studied. And finally we'll make a co- appeal to people who are concerned and who care, who've seen too many murders in their lifetime, to get busy and find out who is doing these and what we can do about it. I do want to begin this program with a record you've heard many times this week, but I want it on the tape for this week called Imagine. Hello. 
last week on this program, I asked some questions when the program began about 1981 when Ronald Reagan and the team moved into the White House. How will we remember 1980 and who will stop assassinations and murders and genocide and torture? And I had a long list of questions that are on a printed sheet that you can send for if you don't have it. People that subscribe to the tapes get it with the tapes. I also said the assassination teams from the early 60s are all in place. And the murderers are moving up in power as Ronald Reagan takes over in the Senate in California and the Senate and the House and committees in Washington, D.C. Strom Thurmond, the member of the Senate who wanted the Lenins deported in the 70s, early 70s, on the most flimsy charges, is now head of the Judiciary Committee. Well, Sunday night I posed some questions for the end of this year in trouble spots in the world and listed them. And 24 hours later, John Lennon was dead. And within two days, that body of flesh, whatever it is, was cremated and delivered to Yoko Ono in a jar. And what remains is what we remember and what we do with it. The flesh is gone, but the memories, of course, live on. Our family were fortunate, uh, I suppose, of all the people listening tonight who take the tapes. Maybe we were one of the few that had the opportunity to meet the Lennons. We spent the day with John and Yoko Lennon in San Francisco at the Stanford Court. My first article, Why Was Martha Mitchell Kidnapped, about Watergate, had just come out that week, and they called immediately to Carmel and invited us to spend the day with them. Uh, we were Beatle fans from the time he first came with the others to Ed Sullivan's program, and we took our children to Candlestick Park for their very, we didn't know it'd be their last concert, but we took them October 29th in 1966, and they left and went to Great Britain, and that was the last time the group was seen together. We also took all our children, we had seven seats for every concert at the Monterey Pop, summer of 69, and they saw and heard people like Janis Joplin and Otis Redding and Jimi Hendrix and Mama Cass, the Mamas and Papas, and others. And the music scene has been a very much a part of our family life uh, through all of these turbulent years. We enjoyed the music. We learned from it. It freed us from a lot of things. And I have a lot of emotions, of course, about the Lennons and uh, what happened this week that neatly ties up this era. I, at one time, they considered renting our home in Carmel, California. Yoko's husband, Mr. Cox, had kidnapped her daughter, and uh, she was supposed to be, they believed, at Wood School in Carmel. She was seen at Carmel Beach, and they sent a friend of theirs who was with them when we visited down here to look at the house to see if they could use our home and live here and see if they could locate her daughter. But at the end of the summer, the trail grew cold and they weren't here any longer so there was no reason for them to move to Carmel. My first issue of The Realist that introduced me to the Lennons or the Lennons to us had a cartoon that Paul Krasner had in there, Rose America's Baby, and it was a takeoff of the American situation, the political situation at the time in the summer of 1972 and it's ironic to know that Rosemary's Baby was actually filmed at the Dakota Apartments 
where the Lenins live. There are all kinds of ironies and situations that come to mind at a time like this. When I heard John Lennon was shot, I had to deal with it this week in four different compartments of my mind. One, what the Beatles did for me personally, for May Brussel, with five children, ages one and a half to 14, and the freedom that their lifestyle gave to me personally and helped me grow. I wasn't a teenager. I wasn't a runaway from home. I was a married woman with five children, but deeply moved by uh, three influences in my life, one Virginia Woolf, the other Henry Miller, and the other the Beatles, and the rock music scene, along with the Beatles. Then I thought of the relationship of the Lennons and having the opportunity to meet them and know them personally, and then I had to deal with my anger at them for taking five years off to uh, find themselves, to accumulate extreme wealth, to pull out, to take care of the baby, to find that inner self, because there wasn't uh, five minutes or five hours or five days that I thought there was a luxury of doing that introspection. I did that kind of thing when the family was asleep or I was through with my work or taking a hot bubble bath at night or going down to Big Sur or camping or whatever, uh, the uh, road that we're going into World War III, the inevitable atomic war that this government is building up for, was so apparent and the murders were so apparent of people who spoke up for peace that it was really a luxury to take this time out. And while he was close to his child, the five years trying to find himself and then comes forward and says, yeah, I'm emerging. I spent five years with my child. I had five children and had to deal with the politics of the time and my children also as a researcher, as a writer, doing the radio shows, reading, studying, and still dealing with a family. And then, of course, you have to deal with the news media and the blatant lies they publish right after these kinds of murders. And while I'm not going into the evidence of uh, the assassination this week, there's enough to tell you right now uh, how the media is covering it, and we'll go more into this David Mark Chapman later this evening and in the next couple of weeks. But we have to deal with the news media, the brainwashing, the lone nut, the single coup, the easy story that people want to accept. Yoko Ono wrote a poem in 1963, in the autumn of 63. She doesn't date it, whether it began before John Kennedy was killed or after, but it's called Collecting Peace, and this is what she wrote. Collect sounds in your mind that you have overheard through the week. Repeat them in your mind in different orders one afternoon. And thinking of that poem, and we have her collected poetry, I began to think of things that I had heard during the week that came to my mind. John Lennon, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Otis Redding, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Dwayne Allman, Mama Cass Elliott, Graham Parsons, Mark Bolin, Keith Moon, Paul Kossoff, Jim Reeves, Barry Oakley, Tim Buckley, Jim Croce, Richard Farina, 
Donald Rex Jackson, the manager for the Grateful Dead, Michael Jeffrey, the manager of Jimi Hendrix, Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, Vinnie Taylor of the Shah Nana on the eve of a big concert they were going to, Paul Williams, choreographer for The Temptations, Pamela Morrison, the wife of Jim Morrison, Rod McKiernan, Pigpen, known as Pigpen of the Grateful Dead, Phil Oakes, Salminio, Meredith Hunter, and the Ritual Killing at Aldemont Festival. I wrote a chapter for an article called Helter Skelter, Give Me Shelter, from the Beatles till Aldemont. That was the concert where Melvin Belli, Jack Ruby's attorney, who I mentioned often on this program, the attorney for Mussolini and Mrs. Herman Goering, hired the Hells Angels who did the ritual killing of Meredith Hunter before a camera to show the world that the peace lovers had a violent festival. It was really the end of the authentic rock festival. Steve Parson, lead singer of the children, Jimmy Reed, Rick, Ricky Valens, J.P. Richardson of the Big Border, Rennie Van Zant and Steve Gain of the Leonard Skinner Group, Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols who was singing anti-Nazi songs, John Bonham of the Led Zeppelin, Nearly Dead, the third mysterious man when Richard Pryor caught fire, Bob Dylan's near-fatal crash on a motorcycle. He didn't... Uh, he survived. It wasn't like Richard Farina, who didn't survive, who died in Carmel Valley. Stevie Wonder almost died. Eric Clampton, the Dave Mason band, and the Weavers were nearly dead. The FBI had documented plans to destroy their group. And along with them, the original, the original murder, Lenny Bruce, and others, Bonnie Morney, Larry Williams, and Bon Scott, the lead singer of ACDC, the Australian rock group. I'm not talking about politicians, I'm talking about musicians. Some plane crashes, some automobile crashes, some allegedly overdoses, most of them on the eve of new big successes, bigger records, every reason to live, many of them anti-establishment, Janice making fun of Port Arthur, Texas, and Jimi Hendrix screwing the guitar and telling the establishment to stick it and shove it. There were all kinds of ways to die. There's ways to skin a cat. But John Lennon was the cruel, similar to John Kennedy, on the street, not overdosed like Elvis Presley. His doctor was almost charged with murder, but gunned down like a dog as he was ready to emerge from his own private life. And this broadcast also is for Bonnie Brussel, 14 years old, this is the first radio program of mine on Sunday night since John Lennon was murdered, and it's the 10th anniversary of my own daughter's murder, along with many children and siblings of researchers and writers and politicians. We paid our dues many times over, so Yoko, we know what sorrow is. The dog that I got information about who arranged that accident here on the Monterey Peninsula is now under indictment for the wrong reasons, an ab scam, but he'll get off because he's one of the biggest fixers of the mob and all the other murders and fits right into this picture. So I know from brutal experience that these things stay a long time and they recur and they'll recur until we decide that we've had enough. 
I don't know when your bottom line is who you have to see killed until you say, I'm ready to fight back. But at some time, you're going to have to decide who it is that's going to be off that you're going to stand up and get mad about. Mort Saul wrote in his book, Heartland, about my expose of various murders, and he wrote, how many have to die before some Americans realize that murder is not a way of life. Too many have lost America because they brought her their lust but could never love her. And then he criticized Hugh Hefner, who attacked Mae Brussel, he said, who is an assassination researcher who pursues these murders selflessly. And he asks the question, when are we going to stop this? Mort said, I started the battle early. That's when he started investigating the murder of John Kennedy. The enemy isn't political in nature. It's insanity, which I combated through my purpose. And he tells how hard it was for America to understand what is happening. Mort Saul asked a few years ago in that book, is it too late for America? How many lies before you belong to the lies? You can't return to your own lines. They don't recognize you. You are made different by the company you keep. Nixon reminds you of what you have become. That was written several years ago. Life is a series of woven threads, and you put them together, and pieces fit together, and patterns and designs, and you get impressions of these fabrics depending on the colors and use and the way they weave and the lives that weave in and out. But social change, people like John Lennon and the Beatles or those others that I mentioned and listed that have died young at the prime of their career making change, social change is difficult. It's hard to do. Breaking those chains, knowing each other, loving each other, sharing each other, sending the message that peace is possible, that war is wrong, is difficult to get into people's minds. They associate you with the enemy when you don't want to fight or kill other people. Uh, what's wrong with you? Are you queer? Are you coward? Are you a communist? They don't see that the only way to survive and enjoy anything in this world is through peace. And people who want to make change are gunned down and brutally it came to all of us this week. Carl Sandburg wrote a poem that is one of my favorites, Advice of a Father to a Son Nearing Manhood. And he says, Life is hard, be steel, be a rock. And that's true. And then he said, Life is a soft loam. Be gentle and go easy, because brutes have been gentled where lashes failed. And he referred to the way frail flowers come and shatter, split rock. I think of that often when I drive down Highway 1 or up on the hill where I live and I see these poppies coming out of nowhere, out of rock, and you know that it works. And he advised in his poem to sons to take time off and be alone often and get to know yourself, which was what Lennon was doing the last five years, and don't tell white lies and keep protective fronts. Tell him solitude is creative if he is strong and the final decisions are made in silent rooms. Be different from other people. And this was what Lennon was saying. If it comes natural and easy, being different, Carl Sandberg had advised. Let him have lazy days seeking his deeper motives and let him seek deep from where he was born so that he may understand Shakespeare and the Wright brothers and Pasteur 
and free imaginations bringing into a world a world that resents change. And John Lennon uh, exemplified that kind of a challenge to the world. The Beatles, all of them, I don't want to single him out, but he is the one who was killed. And he is the one that took this kind of advice and went off by himself and came out optimistic and was emerging with a young son and a wife and recording and uh, was gunned down in New York. I wrote an article for a national magazine several years ago. They wanted on the killing of the rock musicians, the government documents that they were being harassed and suppressed. And then the top boss of the magazine killed the story. They paid me for it and I kept the rights. And maybe I'll rewrite it now with John Lennon's name to the list. But the managing editor of the magazine called me this week uh, about a possible story on the murder of John Lennon. So I sent them another resume of what I would put into the article, and this is what I put as my resume. Uh, these are the subjects that I would include. It would be a one-page resume of what I would do if they want to do it this time. The assassin, Mark David Chapman, was a tool identical to other political zombie murderers. Dantant and peace are lethal words in a society that has been determined since 1919 to make war against the Soviet Union. Rock music and musicians were becoming the largest social, cultural, and political force for world peace. This energy, talent, and enthusiasm was spreading around the world. Operation Chaos and other federal government programs were formed to disrupt, reject, and eliminate the combined skills of too many. They did a good job. Their project has worked until now because of inaction and apathy of both the victim's family and their fans, and the crimes are concealed by the mass media. Lennon's murder today is being compared to John Kennedy's. The war in Southeast Asia escalated November 24, 1963, with no known provocation it was planned in advance for that date. At the time that John Lennon was murdered, November 9, 1980, the United States is on the brink of war in Poland and the Middle East. My goals for this article would be four things. One, the motive, the reasons for killing John Lennon, and I listed four motives, his anti-war capability of gathering us together again, his capability to do it one more time, his anti-establishment attitude, his anti-Christ statements he made years ago, and his anti-macho perspective of life. As against the Clint Eastwoods and the John Waynes, he was a man who could tender and take care of a child and uh, get him prepared for life in the home, in the milieu of loving parents, bake his bread, write his songs, make love, and be creative, and work for peace, and it's those things that the establishment can't tolerate. The motive, as I say, for killing him was the anti-Christ, his position on religion, anti-war, anti-establishment, and anti-macho. Secondly, I would compare Mark David Chapman to the other political killers, the smirk, the loner, the mysterious wife, the unemployed with money, who travels around continents to Beirut, Lebanon, Switzerland, London, Southeast Asia, the Jesus freak, the good boy, the anti-Lenin politics.
Thirdly, I would give documented proof that government agencies dislike the entire music culture, the rock musicians, the anti-war, anti-establishment gatherings, and document the historical pattern set in Germany from 1922 to 1933 of similar murders systematically done to silence opponents of World War II, and then list the other artists that were wiped out. That is a resume I sent to them. If they want it this time, I'll write it for them. If not, I may just sit down and put it into one book. Mark David Chapman traveled all over the world, as I say, London, Switzerland, Southeast Asia. He was in New York in October. He's back again in November. Uh, he traveled with weapons. He's a mystery person. And similar to all the other political assassinations, to give you an example of the kind of similarity that runs through all the other uh, people that were picked up as suspects or the alleged assassins, such as Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, Sirhan Sirhan, all had doubles, multi-names, aliases, a lot of money, traveled other continents, allegedly were loners, had a lot of friends, but... Uh, we're told that they did this one act alone out of some anger or particular frustration. In this tri case, they're trying to say that he thought he was the Beatle and identified and killed the bad part of him. There was a picture taken of John Lennon signing a record album with Mark David Chapman. And when Lennon was killed, the photographer called the New York police and they refused to accept the picture. They didn't want it. They said, don't bother. Then his wife was told, according to the Los Angeles Times, on the telephone, don't release any other pictures of Chapman. Then in Miami, in Dade County, they had a mix-up on a computer, and he used to live in Miami. And the New York court said that erroneously they, he had a criminal record, and the computer picked up the name of the fugitive, the last name, the date of birth, the race, the height of the slang suspect, and it seems that there was another person down in Florida that fit all of this. So there was a mix-up in the courts. So there probably, obviously, was another Mark David Chapman. And when he was arrested, I saw something on television, which I haven't seen since the stories when Lee R.B. Oswald was taken out of the theater in Dallas, Texas. They threw a coat over the Mark David Chapman that went into the jail, and you didn't see the face of the person. So the police department at first didn't want any photographs. They notified the wife don't give pictures and they protected his face. Now you've read recently in the newspaper about the uh, missing Oswald. Marina Oswald is 99% sure that the person in the grave isn't Lee Harvey Oswald. Next week we'll go in more into the physical evidence, the subterfuge, the use of doubles. But this is the same kind of hanky-panky. I'm giving you one example tonight, and I don't want to dwell too much on it this evening, of the subterfuge in the Lennon case. Why tell Mrs. Chapman not to release these pictures? Maybe they weren't going to bring this one in. Maybe they had another zombie who would take the rap and be killed. If somebody hadn't taken that picture in front of the Dakota apartments and uh, gave it to the New York Daily News or newspaper there. Why did the police refuse to accept the picture? Why did they come out with a computer readout of identical information from Florida and then have to backtrack and apologize in the courts about a past record? This uh, Mark David Chapman did live in Florida, and Oswald had doubles in Florida that I'm working 
on a book. He had doubles down there. And they were withholding pictures. They covered his head. When Lee Harvey Oswald was taken from the theater when he was arrested after John Kennedy was killed in Dallas, Texas, in November 1963, he said, in quotes, why should I hide my face? I haven't done anything to be ashamed of. And a coat was thrown over his face. And later it did turn out that there were three other Lee Harvey Oswalds with identical faces, so we still don't know who was in the theater because there is no photographic record of this person leaving the theater. Well, that's the way the coat was thrown over this Chapman's face. They had a description exactly, a computer readout in Florida. He lived in Florida. The police didn't want the photograph on site. Now, you would think that the New York police squad, if they weren't uh, in on part of the subterfuge, would accept any pictures because maybe there were other people in the background with him or somebody that drove him there. But it's this kind of subterfuge that runs through the assassination of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, the shooting of George Wallace, and the mysteries of Chappaquiddick. The political assassinations have a pattern that never fails. It comes through at times like this, and that's one reason that I'm comparing the shooting of John Lennon to the shooting of uh, John Kennedy, because there are these similarities that don't wash away, and they involve the FBI computer readouts or the police department, and the subterfuge that those people investigating it should be working on, but they cover up for whatever reason, and the reason involves the assassins themselves, the people that send this guy halfway around the world, all the way around the world and back, and he ends up at the Dakota Apartments. It's 30 minutes now for those that have the cassettes. We'll turn those over. I'll take a break. It's Mae Brussels. We'll be back in one minute. This concludes the first half of World Watchers International with... Uh, when we were with the Lennons in 1972 and they had my realist article, a section of that article had to do with American assassins as mutations, as a creation of our espionage establishment being subject to mind control and the role of the news media in perpetuating the lies about these assassins. And uh, part of that article had to do with the story, the lie about Lee Harvey Oswald being, in quotes, the lone assassin. And I said, our American assassins hired as decoys are either killed or isolated in their cages. The lone assassin becomes an animal to be dissected by Pentagon social scientists and psychiatrists. And then the media, the puppet media and other experts pick up the lingo and pass along disinformation as facts. And while this human being is turned into a patsy, monitored every second and isolated until his death, covert agents manufacture what are supposed to have been his motives for becoming the assassin. The fictitious personality should be studied and is supposed to be the model of future assassins. And I mentioned then that Sirhan Sirhan, Charles Manson, John Frazier, and others, if they were free to talk, would shake American justice and conspiratorial processes to their very roots. And I went on the domino theory that if you say that Lee Harvey Oswald was a loner or a misfit or rejected or unknown or wanted a place in history, 
then you could carry this same story on to the killing of Robert Kennedy or Martin Luther King or the murder at Chappaquiddick or the shooting of George Wallace in Maryland. And I mentioned that the physical evidence to solve these crimes is put aside, criminology is put aside, and out comes the profile of the assassination that is a total diversion from the facts. And in the next few weeks, I'm going to outline ways that we can go into who killed John Lennon. One of the uh, chances or flukes of history is that David Mark Chapman had offices across the street from the Scientologists in Hawaii. The Scientologists are the most fervent investigators. They made the original connections of J. Edgar Hoover to Interpol to the Nazis and have published many articles on mind control. And if this David Mark Chapman was at a mental hospital in Hawaii where Edmund Kemper and uh, various other California assassins were sent and turned into killers, they will know it. They will trace him out. And while the death of John Lennon has only been less than one week, be sure that the Scientologists who knew this character on the island will go to every length they can to find out who paid his way to Lebanon, who paid his way to Southeast Asia, what organization he worked for, how he got to Switzerland, how he got in the army camp in Arkansas with the Vietnamese. And they'll trace him, but they're right in Hawaii, and they knew him. And as a fluke of history, it may be that they will help put in the missing pieces of this terrible murder. The Los Angeles Times and all the major newspapers run disgusting stories after these assassinations. And also in the next few weeks, I'll read you the headlines of some of the other political assassinations and then update you what was really true, uh, what the real truth was, and how the media is used to brainwash everybody and put them to sleep and at rest that uh, there is no violence per se in this country. These are just loners out wanting to identify with their victims. The Los Angeles Times had a story John Lennon's death didn't fit the pattern. They go into Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Keith Moon, John Bonham, but Robert Hilburn, who said Lennon's death, did not fit the pattern. What was the pattern? Overdose of drugs, car accidents, plane crashes. Uh, what was the pattern? It may not have fit the pattern of Lenny Bruce being overdosed because he was very political, talking about the Kennedy assassination, or Dr. Kruger, the hypnotist, giving Freddie Prince his gun uh, and being with him, telling him to go home when he's allegedly depressed, handing him the gun, and Freddie Prince is home playing the Zabruder films of the killing of John Kennedy and about to go to Florida to find out who killed Kennedy. Uh, it didn't fit the pattern of Otis Redding or Jim Croce and the Leonard Skinner, the plane crashes, or Buddy Holly, but it fit a pattern. And the Los Angeles Times doesn't go into that. John Lennon's murder fit a pattern of Abraham Lincoln, who was against slavery, or uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who was against material possessions that Lennon sings about in Imagine and chasing imperialism out of India and escorting the British to the edge of the water and telling him to scram. It fit the pattern of John Kennedy gunned down in Daly Plaza. It certainly fit the pattern of Malcolm X gunned down in New York City with the Red Squad and Tony Laswitz and all the 
the Watergate White House team behind that murder. It fit the Martin Luther King assassination on the balcony, gunned down in cold blood, or the Robert Kennedy murder in the Ambassador Hotel, or Representative Leo Ryan's murder down in Jonestown. Each one of these people was trying to make the world safer against slavery, against colonialism, for civil rights, against the nuclear test ban treaty, against organized crime, uh, for prison reform. Every one of these was a social activist, and you certainly have to know if you've played Lennon songs or known John Lennon, particularly even after the Beatle group broke up, the social activism and the concern and the Beatles themselves breaking all the establishment rules, John Lennon's anti-establishment attitude. He did all the wrong things and succeeded. In this country, you're supposed to go to Groton, you're supposed to go to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and wear pointy black shoes with three-button or two-button coats and look and talk a certain way and get on Meet the Press and talk about indexes and price indexes and talk about the country in terms that nobody understands. The Los Angeles Times for once, Rock wasn't to blame. John Lennon's death didn't fit the pattern. I repeat, it fit the pattern perfectly for what he believed in, and that's why people are so sad this week and meeting all over the world and in genuine grief, the same grief they felt when John Kennedy was murdered. They didn't cry for the flesh they lost. They cried for the world they face without them. They realized they had a friend and the friend is gone, and we sit back and expect political leaders to do it for us, to do things for us. Uh, the leaders can't do it alone, and certainly when they're up front, they're gunned down. So while he didn't fit the pattern of the rock music, he fit the pattern of people who want to change in the world, as I listed them to you, and that's just a few names. There's many, many more, Doug Homerschold and Adlai Stevenson and there were plane crashes and people falling out of windows. But I'm talking about men that were gunned down in public in front of the people that loved them and came to admire them. And his murder fit that pattern. Next week, I'm not going into the details now. I'm going to do a resume of another article. It's from the Chicago Tribune this week. It's another BS newsprint cover-up story. The Four Faces of Lennon's Killer, a Bizarre psychiatric portrait. Well, where did James Younger come across it within six days? How does he know about the tormented brain of Mark David Chapman? This is I've seen this crap for so long, I want to puke. But even he has to ask questions when he doesn't have the answers, and it's the questions he asks that will give us the clue to find out what went behind this murder. One interesting thing, he says that Mark David Chapman was itching to wander so he got a job as a YMCA student working in Beirut, Lebanon. The man that wrote The Exorcist, his name was Blake or Blady. I was looking for that book tonight. I couldn't find it on my shelf. He was from the United States military, head of military intelligence, and worked in Beirut, Lebanon, and the CIA had a mind control center there. So itching to wander at age 20 doesn't explain what Mark David Chapman was doing, but I would venture to say that after... He left Fort Worth, and after he went to Florida, and then went to Georgia and Tennessee, uh, I would venture to say that his real initiation into mind control began in Beirut, Lebanon. 
I'm saying that this is only six days since John Lennon was murdered, but I'll give you a little clue where to look for the mind control. That's where the personality began to change of this man who they said identified with Lennon but worked strictly with the Jesus, fe Jesus uh, freaks, the people that were against the Beatles, against the Lennons that resented the remarks John Lennon had made. I was upset about the Lennon shooting on uh, Tuesday morning. I came into KLRB just to walk around and mainly to get out of the house because the phone had been ringing since 11 o'clock at night. And by 3 in the morning, I fell asleep and it started. And I came into KLRB. And one of the people that uh, works here that I've known over the years right away said to me, you know it was one lone person. Well, I would accept the fact that one lone person killed John Lennon after I investigate the facts. But there's something I don't understand, and that is how people can solve a crime in 12 hours. They must know a lot more than I know, but they don't have the library I have. I have many, many books on Operation Mind Control, the CIA involvement in mind control, the CIA telling people to kill themselves, the control of Candy Jones, how she came to California and took on two personalities, how she was told to murder herself in Paradise Island. They say this boy shot John Lennon because he was suicidal. The CIA trains you to be suicidal. You, you can be perfectly normal until they get their hands on you, and then they teach you how to be suicidal. You don't shoot John Lennon because you're suicidal, and you don't travel across continents, go to New York and staying at uh, $81 room hotels and back to Hawaii and back to New York. And the thing that I really get upset about it doesn't really matter. I'm going to do my work no matter what, and there's some people that know what's going on in the world, and there's some that never will. But it just really blows my mind that 13 hours after somebody as irreverent, anti-establishment, anti-war as John Lennon is, was, uh, can be gunned down, and the willingness of people to accept the fact that the case is solved in 12 hours. I just, it happens over and over again. I don't understand it. At least study how this fellow got to London, how he got to Southeast Asia, what he was doing in Hawaii. Even this great uh, Chicago Tribune article doesn't explain. They said they don't know how he got to Hawaii. Who met him there? What was his wife doing there? Is she an agent? All these questions beg to be answered over and over and over again. And it isn't simple. There are not simple answers. And the fact that the world is grieving for John Lennon so badly means that he touched us. And if he touched us that badly, who else was he touching? Whose shoes was he stepping on? Because not everyone sees the world as you see it or May Brussels sees it. A lot of people see it a different way. I saw today's show this week, and a man wrote a book on atomic warfare. Tom Brokaw was interviewing him, and he explained that atomic warfare is going to be a fact in the Reagan administration and that it doesn't matter if North America is wiped out because South America will continue to exist without the radiation. And then Tom Brokaw says, well, that isn't very nice, and suggests now we'll turn back to Jane Pauley, and today we're going to review Popeye and 
the woman who plays a part of olive oil is on cut to the next segment of the news wouldn't you just jump out of your chair if you were tom broco and say north america isn't going to survive i mean you're telling me it's not important adolf hitler said in his books let's take all of south america or african middle east because north america is run by the jews and liberals and they don't count and years later, here's a man writing about atomic warfare, and we're on the brink of atomic warfare the morning after John Lennon is murdered. This dog is talking about the North American continent, accepting the fact of radiation and being a plausible thing. When the elections were going on and the debates were going on, Jimmy Carter said and implied Reagan would get us into a war, and Reagan said, I'm highly incensed. This is the most terrible thing you've ever said. And here is a man in the Regan camp outright saying it up front as if it's a fait accompli. Would John Lennon have stood for that? Would he have allowed his silence after those five years of tending a little boy, a child, and an 18-year-old, 17-year-old son? What forces would get together to stop World War III? It wasn't just what John Lennon or the Beatles did that was a threat to this government going into these treacherous times. It's their potential that had to be wiped out. It isn't just uh, what they said about peace and love and brotherhood in the past. It's all there. That's all there for us. And people all over the world have mourned and will continue to mourn. The point was that he was emerging. And it's we don't know what he would do. Maybe he'd continue buying four limousines, maybe eight. Maybe he has a Vanderbilt estate in Florida. Maybe he'd buy the Whitney. Maybe he wants uh, all their estates and castles. Maybe he wouldn't do anything. Maybe they continue to collect fur coats. I don't know what they would do. But if there was a war and he didn't want his boy to be bombed out or his family or the human race bombed out, all they'd have to do, the four Beatles, is get on the phone and have a concert, and people's awareness would be put together. So the gangland slaying of this man was to wipe out his potential, and that's important. And as Carl Sandberg said, learn in silence and learn facts. And as he was emerging, he spent five years, and Lennon, you know, learned a lot in those five years. The Bible is an interesting book, and when you read the beginning of it, you learn about the Garden of Eden. And don't forget the forbidden fruit. I mentioned this many times on broadcast. The forbidden fruit was not nudity or screwing around. It was knowledge. Be careful of knowledge because knowledge will kill you. And in these terrible times, the smart ones get off because they're the ones that have put it together so that the tree of the Garden of Eden was knowing the difference between good and evil. The tree, the knowledge of good of evil, thou shalt not eat it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I wonder sometimes if um, this wasn't written to keep people from thinking, to whoever wrote these sayings in the Bible, to keep you under their control. This was a form of mind control of its own, to make you fearful to learn. Because once you learn, you can do things for yourself. You have life pretty much under control. That's one of the things the Beatles and the 60s taught me. I had a large home, a lot of help, 
as I say, a big family and uh, depended on a lot of people for ideas, although I was learning all the time. And after Kennedy was killed, I began to figure out things myself. I read contradictions in what the newspapers said as against what the Warren Commission hearings published of, under sworn testimony of witnesses. I began to learn I didn't have to dress a certain way. You didn't have to get out certain kinds of shoes in the winter and put them away in the spring. Uh, your spectator pumps, your white shoes, your matching purses, uh, red purse with red shoes, blue shoes with blue purse. I got rid of all the things I didn't need in the 60s, and I was very moved by the 60s. Even though I was 40 at the time, I got rid of the high heels and the girls and the stocking and the jewelry and the beauty parlors and all the accoutrements and all the junk and began to make my own things or my own gifts and my own uh, entertaining in my own way and uh, realize that there were layers of lies that they put on you. It sells good. It's great Madison Avenue, but you don't have to keep buying hose that run and all that crap and uh, coats that match and accessories that match. It was a period when the Beatles came with their clothes and their joie de vivre that I enjoyed. I wasn't brought up in a strict home, but it was fairly conservative home, freer than most, actually. But there was a spirit. And of course, I took the kids uh, to see the movies, particularly Diane. She was my youngest. The others could go off the movies on their own. So we saw Help 20 times and Hard Day's Night 20 times, and she dressed like Ringo. She, there was a scene with a lot of red in it, so she had to have red shoes and red socks and red shirt. And one day I came home and her uh, ponytails were cut off, her pigtails, because she wanted to be like the Beatles. She had long, pretty hair, but she wanted to be like Ringo. And we lost a Ringo. She used to call him Yingo up at Saddle Mountain Ranch up here. And he was a little rubber Yingo that used to move around and, and she lost him in a sandbox, and we had to go back and weeks later go through all the sand and find Ringo. And uh, we had the music. We had the music of all those artists I mentioned and went to see Bob Dylan up in San Jose. So uh, personally, it made a big change in my life in who I began to see, how I began to think, how I could feel or express myself through the music of the time and Along with the research that I was doing on the political assassinations, I had this other part of me uh, that was interested always in the music of the times. And uh, uh, personally, it was really hard. It was hard to remember uh, how much they touched me until this week and these songs would come on. And uh, each song would remind me personally of something I was doing at the time it came out. Let it be was written May the 8th, 1970, on the birthday of one of my sons. I remember where I was when I heard, Hey Jude, I was coming up, we were camping at Big Sur, uh, and I was up near Rio Road up here in Carmel when I heard Hey Jude the first time. And I associate so many of their songs. I have a few favorites, but it was an era, and it didn't end. It, it was continuous. John, uh, when he took his years out, was still... Uh, there was enough good stuff to listen to. He didn't have to keep pumping music while he was doing his thing. The real tragedy, one of the real tragedies, is that uh, they didn't know the political animal. They were busy pulling back and retrenching and analyzing themselves, and as I say, not simultaneously knowing politics. 
in the new Playboy article that came out January 1981, the one that's on the stands now, Yoko and John have an interview, and Yoko Ono said, the law is not a mystery to me anymore. Politicians are not a mystery to me. I'm not scared of all that establishment anymore. Uh, you wouldn't go in a nest of rattlesnakes and say that. You wouldn't go in to a place where wild lions are. And just because John Mitchell went to jail and came out, he didn't soften his hatred of them or their potential, or Strom Thurmond, or Richard Nixon, or Kissinger, or Brzezinski, or the Rednecks, or the Jesus Freaks who didn't like that saying. Uh, I knew immediately that this guy was influenced by that remark of Jesus, and sure enough, it turned out he carried that around with him. I was told, well, that was so long ago, you wouldn't kill Lenin for that. Uh, that's what somebody told me this week. I said, oh, no. You get somebody who makes a remark like that way back in the 60s or early 70s. This was in the 60s. And it would trigger a mind control program for somebody who wanted to get rid of them if they ever emerged. And emerging, they were. So this has been a very sad week. Yoko and John's innocence was to say the politicians are not a mystery. I'm not scared of the establishment anymore. And if there's one thing I leave with you this evening is that as long as these killings are unsolved, the politicians are a mystery to you and me. As long as they get away with it, they are a mystery. You can't sit back and say a Beatles fan killed a Beatle. You can't say Lee Harvey Oswald wanted a place in history, so he killed John Kennedy. It wasn't that way at all. He was working with George de Morinchild, a known war criminal, a Nazi, during World War II. He had high contacts in the military establishment. These are not loners. They're well-financed, they're well-traveled, they're well-placed, and they know how to hurt us. And as long as their mentality exists, they'll continue to hurt us. And that is the tragedy. Well, I'm going to close this evening with a song I want them to play here from John Lennon's Merry Xmas, Merry Christmas, the war is over, and next week we'll do part two on the cold-blooded murder of John Lennon. Happy Christmas, Kyoko. Happy Christmas, Julie. So this is Christmas, and what have you done?
This has been World Watchers International with noted conspiracy investigator Mae Brussel. This program originates from Carmel, California. World Watchers International originates at KLRB, Carmel, California. Here's May. Good evening. This is May Brussel in Carmel, California. This is broadcast number 471, December the 20th, 1980. I began and closed the uh, broadcast last week with a song by John Lennon and the Beatles. And I'd like to do that again for the next, uh, this week and the next week uh, with some feelings or impressions I have about the Beatles. So we'll play one more song now. And then we'll begin with the second part of the expose of the assassination of John Lennon and go into the smoking gun. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land get back to the bulk of the broadcast and uh, as I say last week I talked 
about John Lennon, his political views, uh, his controversial lifestyle, impressions, and memories of the Beatles. And this evening, I want to talk about the methods used to pol- to conceal political assassinations and, uh, some, as I say, some of the evidence for a smoking gun. And for those writers and researchers who are taking these tapes, they can proceed and assist me in looking into this further. Before I get into the smoking gun, I do want to mention that Herb Cain had a column in the San Francisco Chronicle this last week, I believe it was Thursday, and there was a letter from Paul Krasner to Herb Cain that he published in the Chronicle. And for those of you who don't live in the Bay Area or the West Coast, I just want to pass it on. Uh, Paul Krasner wrote to Herb Cain and mentioned that meeting John Lennon, he said, fused coincidence with mysticism forever. In the early 60s, when Yoko Ono was struggling, avant-garde artist who didn't know the Beatles from a B-52, she had some absurd theater project where customers got inside of huge black cloth bags on a shift in a restaurant, and I gave her the last few thousand dollars of my savings. I always was an impulse shopper. Then in 1972, I published the Watergate issue of my underground paper, The Realist, with May Russell's article, Why Was Martha Mitchell Kidnapped?, documenting a conspiracy involving Richard Nixon, John Mitchell, L. Patrick Gray, and others. I had proofread it at the printer who wouldn't put it to bed until I gave them a $5,000 cashier's check. I left the printer confident, got home, and the phone rang. It was Yoko. She was in town with John. We all went to the bank and got 5000 cash, and the presses rolled. I realized that everyone is the star of his own memories, but I thought you'd enjoy this reminder in lieu of a Christmas card. Now, uh, last week I talked about uh, the tragedy of Lenin, and I want to go into the exemplification of some of the motives for uh, shooting him, and then, as I say, into the chain of command that I think we should follow seriously. Uh, November the 2nd, 1980, on this radio station, I mentioned in that broadcast that rock musicians would have a hard time with the Ronald Reagan administration. That was based upon the fact that Reagan's team have been uh, put into power by the uh, strong church group, the church that resents the remarks that Lennon, John Lennon made about Jesus, that the Young Americans for Freedom that hate the rock musicians, the Birch Society that was part of the assassination teams and helped put Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon into power, have been against the anti-war stance of the rock musicians, the dropout culture, the do-it-your-own-thing. The very people that supported Ronald Reagan's presidency are very much against the rock music scene. And I gave some examples on that tape and warned that uh, this would be a very hard time for those people expressing their feelings about the world. Well, just uh, the Sunday before John Lennon's murder, December the 2nd, in the Washington Post, some of you don't take the Post, there was an article, and it was a full half-page article, with a picture of people standing over a bonfire in, um, this is in Minneapolis, and it's called Witness of Fire. This is December the 2nd, and John Lennon was dead uh, six days later on the 8th of December. The Washington Post ran a story by a man named Tom Zito that begins, Praise the Lord, and then they grit their teeth with copies of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 
The Beatles are dead, and it shows a $50,000 bonfire of uh, music, of rock music. Praise the Lord. And they smashed. The very first record was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This group that are burning the $50,000 worth of records are the Zion Christian Life Center. A pastor, Leroy Peters, has a band of what he calls 100 Christians, and they've put up money, $10,000 and another $50,000. Two brothers became uh, pastors in 1968. 1966 was when the Beatles had their last concert here, but were already uh, uh, fear afraid for their life because of the remarks of Jesus and their anti-war stance at that time period uh, as we escalated the Vietnam War. Now, this was, 69 was the summer of Woodstock and Altamont and the Manson, uh, Sharon Tate murders the Manson family and so forth. But this church was started at this time and it uh, has a group of people that want to pass the torch on to a new generation. In the article, it says the torch passed to a new generation. Well, the torch was a symbol of John Kennedy, and that torch was taken over by E. Howard Hutt and Douglas Caddy and Young Americans for Freedom, people behind the assassination teams as a mockery to John Kennedy's uh, inauguration speech and to the symbolism that he wanted. So this group said the torch will be passed to a new generation, meaning them, and then Southern preachers got up and condemned the gyrating pelvis of Elvis Presley. And as I say, the article says very clearly on December the 2nd, 1980, the Beatles are dead. And a quotation, I know personally that Jesus is still alive, but the Beatles are dead. And the article goes on that they compare Satan to rock musicians and they're going throughout the country. They've been down at Lafayette, Louisiana, and they're rounding up thousands of dollars in rock and roll records and putting them up in smoke. And they're selling tape cassettes on the evils of rock and roll and Satan and making fun of the musicians. There's a quotation about George Harrison and My Sweet Lord and Janis Joplin and Alan Parsons and Jimi Hendrix, uh, just criticizing all of those musicians. And the article compares the fire to Nazi Germany uh, the, the burning of the books in Nazi Germany that they have collected 50,000 and another 10,000 to uh, destroy rock music. But the symbolism of the Washington Post story with the big flame, witness of fire putting the torch to thousands of rock. And then after that December 2nd article on December the 10th, uh, Conrad had a cartoon in the Los Angeles Times that was apropos and it shows three Beatles standing with a vacant space saying Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Sunday before John Lennon was murdered, there was a full-page picture of an supplement under the Los Angeles Times. But there also was a picture of Mr. Blady, who's in Hollywood writing some very successful movies. I mentioned William Blady last week because he worked under the auspices of George Washington University, Georgetown University, rather, and in Beirut, Lebanon, and was head of the United States, uh, a mind control section of the United States military. Uh, he's the man who wrote The Exorcist. He's now in Hollywood uh, putting out several movies, The Ninth Configuration and Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, I think of Citizen Kane and Orson Welles. 
uh, he has 2.3 million that he just put in a recent movie. But that's the man that I mentioned who was very much into mind control in Beirut, Lebanon, and I'll do more about Beirut in a little while. But witness of fire is a scary thing to see just six days before Lenin was actually murdered. I mentioned last week that when we solve these crimes or try to solve them, we have to contend with a news media that admittedly has 400 agents working for the CIA. This came out at the time of the Senate Church Committee. So this last week, there were headlines of the usual cover story, and I don't want to deal with all of those tonight. I just want to go into the evidence of <clears throat> where to look for a conspiracy. But one of the uh, typical kinds of stories coming out of New York newspaper was the Jimmy Breslin article, The Future Belongs to the Good Shot. That just came out in today's paper, and he talks about the Good Shot group, Mark David Chapman, how he belted out John Lennon with four in the chest, so four, the four were so close together the people at the board got them mixed up getting the entrance wounds. Good Shot group, that's what they call it, the firing range, the experts to describe the way Chapman's handgun shooting of Lennon it took place in New York City. Certainly, it must be said that nobody was happy about John Lennon being dead. But at the same time, the gun people did see some hope rising from the tragedy. What impressed them was the good shot group, the way he hit his mark and got it. This is Breslin going on. He said Chapman, with no military background at all, held the gun firmly with both hands and dropped it into the same great crouch preferred by FBI agents and David Berkowitz. If Chapman, an ordinary unschooled citizen shooting under pressure, perhaps for the first time in his life could do so well, <clears throat> then certainly he could be used as a model and gun owners over the nation could be urged to emulate his accuracy. Now, what the point I want to bring out about this article is that Breslin is telling us that with no background at all, that uh, David, Mark David Chapman could shoot so accurately at John Lennon. Uh, what gives him the idea that with all the missing places that Chapman was at, he wasn't trained to shoot? He spent six months in Beirut, Lebanon. Does Breslin know what he was doing there? That was the place where the Israeli athletes' uh, murder plan was arranged in Beirut, Lebanon. There were people from Beirut, Lebanon that I'll go into directly linked to the Georgia location of this Chapman fellow for 18 months between when he got out of high school before he went to Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is the nurturing place of Frank Turple of the CIA and George Corcola of the CIA. And arms are sent there for terrorism, for assassination, for killing Jews around the world, for bombing synagogues, and also rock musicians could fall into that category. As I say, the training place for the uh, killing the athletes in Munich in 1972 was done in Beirut, Lebanon. So out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Murrieta, Georgia, goes Mark Chapman, Mark David Chapman, and how did Breslin know that he didn't set, get six months training there? He went to a school in Georgia where he was trained as a security guard. How does Breslin know he wasn't sent to the place where Mitchell Warbell trains assassination teams to shoot on site? Mitchell Warbell works with Turple and Coca-Cola and the Lebanon, Beirut-Lebanon assassination team set up by the CIA 
How does Breslin know that he didn't get his training in Georgia before he went to Beirut? Chapman took a trip around the world. He was in Asia. He was in Europe. He was in Switzerland. He was in London. He was gone a long time. How does he know that he didn't get his training shooting in any one of those cities? And he worked for a year at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas, a military base. Allegedly, he was helping Vietnamese refugees because the news media had a picture of uh, a child on his shoulders that he was carrying around. But outside of being photographed with that one child, was he at a rifle range? Was he trained at the military base? There are endless places in Georgia where the assassination teams talk about training private armies to get communists, niggers, uh, anti-war protesters, and so forth, and they brag about training places all across the United States and around the world, and I'll read you some of their quotations. So Mark Chapman could have been trained in Beirut. He could have been trained in Atlanta. He could have been trained in Tennessee, where he lived for one year. We don't know what he was doing at these places. This one-shot group that, that Breslin talks about has nothing at all to do with the facts. And yet this is the kind of media trash that's thrown all over the world. Another article in the Chicago Tribune last week, The Four Faces of Lenin's Killer, The Bizarre Psychiatric Portrait by James Junger, Y-U-N-G-E-R, out of Chicago. And he talks about this killer identifying with Lenin and how he wanted to be like Lenin and he wanted to destroy the original Lenin. But then when he gets into the article, he says that uh, Chapman was in Arkansas and fled to Hawaii for unknown reasons. Well, as long as there's unknown reasons why he went to Hawaii, how can the, these situations be solved? He fled, so they knew he'd left in a hurry about something. There were earlier arrest charges that came in on the computer, arrest charges from March 1980 and also from 1972. So what was he fleeing from when he went to Hawaii and who met him in Hawaii and who gave him his job and so forth? So the media is doing their job. They're supplying the motives. They're saying that his link to the Beatles was mystical and so forth. And then there's another article the portrait of a crazy man, and it shows a person holding a tape cassette, Kiernan Crowley from Atlanta, Georgia, who claims that in 1975, Chapman mailed him a tape cassette, and when he saw the name, he just happened to get it out. This reminded me of Lee Harvey Oswald down in New Orleans making a record, I Am a Marxist, that was on uh, television within an hour after John Kennedy was murdered, and years later, it turns out that he made the record with Ed Butler, of Army Intelligence, who worked with Patrick Frawley and the Schick people out in California. He was a military intelligence agent who set up the cover of the communist Marxist Oswald to conceal his connections to Defense Intelligence Agency, the Defense Security Command, the FBI, and Navy Intelligence. The whole purpose of the record was a subterfuge to blame the communists. So out of the news this week comes the picture the portrait of the crazy man and stories of the Lenin killer. We have to deal with these uh, chief of police detective quotations. He's an apparent wacko. And this is a motiveless crime, the attorney said in New York. Everything has an easy solution. And if I have time, I'll go into some of the similarities. Another saying, uh, ex-metal patient held as the killer. 
He was only a mental patient a hard time, but he had a lot more mobility than most mental patients. Being in a mental hospital like Castle Memorial Hospital for a few weeks or months and then proceeding to be hired by that hospital to do their janitor work, to do their printing, to do their layouts, to hire his wife uh, and then send him on these trips. That depression that he had was very short, and following that brief little episode, he began that journey, as I say, around the world. I began setting up uh, the different files. They get larger as the new information comes in. This past week, I separated and continued to do it, the media lies or the cover story. Then the real Chapman, the one that the picture that was finally produced when the news media admitted that up to that time, they threw a blanket over his face. This was even in the newspapers and I talked about last week. That sweetie little cutie with a Beatles-type haircut, like they wore in Help, uh, or Hard Day's Night, rather, holding the child on his shoulders. All of a sudden, people began to say he was mean and he was uh, terrible and his obnoxious personality came out. And then they finally produced the mugshot of the ugly face and uh, instead of calling him hey, just downright fat, 200-pound fat, so they were trying to make him pudgy with his baby fat the first week or so. But I have copies of the false arraignment that hasn't been produced yet. We, I would like to see who it was they thought they had when the first arraignment came in on the computer, the same name, the same height, the weight, and locations. Uh, they have yet to produce that. And then where did he travel? I have a separate catalog on that. He it went from Fort Worth, Texas, where he was born on an Army base, to Miami and Atlanta, and he stayed in DeKalb County in Georgia, and I'll go into that at length. Then to Beirut uh, for a certain amount of time. Chronologically, he got out of high school in 1973 and was in DeKalb County at DeKalb Junior College for 18 months. And in the time period of 1974 was when he became a strong Jesus Freak, anti-Lenin, wrote uh, articles or uh, notes on his book, I Am Jesus. He became a born-again Christian. The next year, Tony Adams of the YMCA sent him to Beirut, Lebanon for six months. And when he came home, he went to Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, which is a Vietnamese refugee base. They were sent there. Now, the Vietnamese that left that country all were related, most of them, to the CIA. Uh, they were kicked out because they would have been killed for humanitarian reasons. They were allowed to come to this country. Many of them came with millions of dollars. Premier Ki and Thu and others came out with a lot of money. He married a woman named Jessica, but so far the media has given her no last name or no identity. She's just Jessica. And that's the year 1975 when he sent the tape to a person saying, I am crazy, and it stayed in the drawer. But I believe the programming began over in Lebanon, and I'll tell you why uh, in this uh, time period. He then went to Tennessee in 1976 to a Presbyterian college for one year. Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. And then in mid-76, the story is that he fled quickly to Hawaii. Uh, he arrived in Hawaii and wrote that he was taking care of old people. Where he worked isn't, set, it isn't explained. There's no name of a place or a location. This also could be a time slot of the mind control programming. And in uh, the second half hour, I'm going into his art gallery connections and the mind programming in Hawaii. So there's a wide open time period here in 1976 from mid-76 
till mid-77 when he goes to the Castle Hospital. He has a breakdown in 77 where he's at Castle Hospital, and again, a good time for mind control programming, erasing memory, suggestive uh, control such as the control of Candy Jones, another agent that was sent all over the world with double personalities. At the same time that uh, he was at Castle Hospital, he had his wife. After he was there, he got a job as a janitor, and later he was in charge of their print shop and doing the art graphic work for them, the layouts. Uh, a janitor at Castle Hospital could also be a plumber like the White House plumbers. In 1978, he was, in quotes, looking for something, so he took a trip around the world. There are discrepancies here about who paid for the trip. One article says an agency paid for it, similar to the YMCA, but it isn't identified. So it could be the AID, the DIA, the CIA, the DISC, the FBI. It's an agency similar, but never named. So uh, the people he worked for when he first arrived on the island are not discussed and uh, who paid for his trip. Another article came out that his father paid for the trip. Uh, he was supposed to be disassociated and not close to his father. His new wife worked for a travel agency, and she made the route for his trip. Her mother and family also put up $5,000 along with his mother for him to buy a portrait of Abraham Lincoln to start his interest in the art galleries. Now, Abraham Lincoln's an interesting character to own for a person born in Texas, living in Florida, uh, hardly a Yankee personality, and uh, then from Arkansas and Tennessee and Georgia, working with some very mysterious people. It's interesting that his first picture is somebody who was killed by the assassination bullet also. Then he parlayed that picture for a Norman Rockwell, which is the American apple pie image, the perfect American image of what America should be. But his mother and his wife's family parlayed uh, money into other art collections. One thing I just mentioned is that $7,000 that he got. Uh, allegedly, he was separated from his mother because she was a strict disciplinarian. That's the way the cover story wants it for you. But in fact, the mother and the wife's family, still unnamed, not identified. We haven't seen in the news a picture of the mother. We haven't seen anything about the wife's family or where she comes from. But this ne'er-do-well loner was financed with art collections and after his wife took a job at Castle Hospital to be near him. He left Castle Hospital to be near an art gallery, and it's at the art gallery where I believe that the control of his mind should be checked out because art galleries around the world have been linked to the past assassination teams, the assassination teams of Beirut, and to the Atlanta, Georgia, Murrieta, Georgia, heart of the conspiracies that killed John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. He was nurtured right in DeKalb County in Murrieta, Georgia, for 18 months after high school before going to Lebanon. So after he, he left a job at the hospital, it went to be a security guard, allegedly to be close to the art gallery. Now, uh, there's another alleged arrest, March 19, 1980, for an armed robbery. But uh, the powers that be said, oh, no, we made a mistake. It's the same name, the same uh, body weight description and so forth. October the 23rd, he checked out of his job and signed that famous John Lennon uh, name that I'm going to go into in a minute. 
In November, he came back to the United States from Hawaii for what the media called a quiet visit to New York. He also had a visit to Atlanta, Georgia in November 1980. He went back to Hawaii for a visit in December 1980 and then back to New York December 3rd. And he said, told them when he left Hawaii he was going to London. John Lennon was murdered December the 8th. And the, I'll go into the log where he signed the name and what happened to the log on December the 10th. So this is the chronology of a man Uh, He was in Switzerland at Geneva visiting a friend of his from the YMCA, a man that he knew earlier when he was first sent to Beirut, Lebanon, who was now stationed in Geneva by the name of Tony Adams, and he went back to see him. And at the end of this first half, we'll take a break for one minute for those of you that have taped cassettes of these programs. Then we'll go back to the name Jerry Adams, and a Mr. Jerry Adams of the Adams Associates Agency in Murrieta, Georgia. And it's a little bit on mind control and Atlanta and Murrieta, Georgia. As the hub of the assassination teams, the people who would have the motive to kill John Lennon and the links of this grisly character to those places. And I think if the investigators center on the apartment he lived in in Hawaii, some people are doing work for me on that. Great work on, uh, and I hope I have time to get into that this evening, the apartment house, who owned it, and the controversial links allegedly to organized crime and to the attorney of uh, these people from organized crime representing Chapman's wife. You'll be able to see that uh, the pattern of the assassinations that uh, we researchers did with the other political figures follows pretty closely the John Lennon assassination. I'll take a breather here for one minute, and then we'll get back to the second half. Hi, we're rolling along pretty fast with a lot of names. Some of you are new listeners and not familiar with the names, the countries, and the places, but you can get a general overview. I tell people that if they're listening for the first or second or third time that if you pick up your newspaper and you read about Mr. Meese or Ronald Reagan's cabinet or Casper Weinberger and these various people, they don't go into their background every single day. They have their names, and if you're interested, you have to go to the library or magazines and look up their background. They don't fill you in. They just tell you what they're doing that day, and that's all they can do. Now, one of the similarities to Lennon's murder and the Kennedy and the other assassinations is the dependence upon the psychiatric profile to uh, nab this alleged assassin and say he was a loner or crazy. And last week in the same Chicago Tribune article I mentioned, there was this four faces of Lennon killer. There was a quotation of psychiatrists trying to analyze this Mark David Chapman. Not where he went, not the places he traveled uh, that I mentioned before, but just this crazy guy standing in front of the Dakota apartments. And one of the psychiatrists was Dr. Robert Marvitt of Honolulu, and the other was Dr. Stuart Berger, a former professor of legal psychiatry at Harvard. And what they claimed was that one of the most important, this quotes, one of the most important hints of his state of mind was Chapman signing the logbook, John Lennon, that they thought he probably, they clarified it was probably, 
uh, identified with Lenin, and he may have had an identity crisis. They're now using the word alleged or probably or may have. They can't say it positively. But the psychiatrist had a headline article, the most important hint in the clue of the murder of why he did this motiveless crime was he signed the logbook. Well, what happened to the logbook? Uh, immediately after John Lennon was murdered, the news media, the New York Post, and uh, New York Daily News, and all the newspapers had a picture of the signature, John Lennon, the one written October 23rd. And the man who manages the apartment, a Joe, a Joe Bostamonte, uh, had the press conference to show the identity crisis of him signing John Lennon. But when the police went two days later to pick up the log, they didn't take it right away and photograph it in the police department. The log was missing. So the most important piece of evidence that they were hinging on is gone. Why is it gone? Well, this fellow who managed the apartment said he didn't think it was important. But why didn't the police go after it that moment? Uh, maybe it doesn't have his fingerprints on it. It reminds me of Lee Harvey Oswald's diary. It was produced in April of 1964, and Gerald Ford took the story of the diary to Henry Luce, and he put it on the cover of Time, and it was the most single important thing to show the mental state of Lee Harvey Oswald, that he was suicidal, like this Chapman, where it actually wasn't true, and they were going to hinge on his own writings to show how muddled he was, and it turned out that the original copy of the diary has never been seen to this day. It's 17 years later. And the original wouldn't have Lee Harvey Oswald's fingerprints. It wouldn't be linked to him. There's no reason to believe he wrote it. So that this log that they were depending upon to show his head is gone. And goodness knows if it was thrown in the ocean or burned or destroyed. But the picture of the ominous signature was mailed to me from New York. Friends who subscribed to the tape in New York. And uh, you see the handwriting there. And that was the big cover story. And then another friend up in the Bay Area, called me immediately to say the San Jose News this last week, Friday, December 19th, had the story of the missing log, and it was also on the 11 o'clock television, but it hasn't been in any other newspaper this entire week. I take 10 a day, and I haven't seen any trace of it. Now, one of the clues, as I say, to uh, his personality must be sought in the art galleries. There was uh, some quotations this week about his having a yen for art galleries, that he liked to collect art. One article uh, from Chicago again said he developed an obsessive interest in art, and he changed his job so he could be near the art gallery. And Newsweek tells about his collecting, uh, borrowing money from his mother and his wife's family and buying these prints. And... By late 1979, he was calling Pat Carlson, a saleswoman at the Waikiki Gallery, three times a week and talking to her hour by hour. And he quit his job at Castle Hospital and took lower pay to be a security card where he could be nearer the local art galleries. Another similarity in all of these studies is that people like Emily and William Harris of the SLA or Charles Watson of the Manson family and various people take lower pay to be near the scene of the crime. Lee Harvey Oswald, who was trained in radar, electronics, language skills, allegedly moving boxes around some old book building at Dealey Plaza at the time. Kennedy's coming through town. People with multi-skills who could be working elsewhere, 
um, uh, take jobs to be near their control agents or they're on assignment. So when I read about his calling three times a week to go to the art gallery and having money not only to travel all over the world to these countries, but to be in contact hourly, frequently with the art gallery, I got out the articles of sworn testimony of Robert Byron Watson. Uh, this was reprinted in a paper, the Hudson Valley Chronicle, in 1977. And in November 6, 1977, I did a tape. If you have that tape cassette, number 294, that goes way back three years now. I did a story of the art galleries, and these were the allegations of Watson. He came from Atlanta, Georgia, and he claimed that Larry McDonald of Marietta, Georgia, who's now head of the House of Representatives conservative bloc, the moral majority, the Christian, new Christian rightist group, Larry McDonald uh, is a big official of the Birch Society, and he's closely associated with a Jerry Adams, Adams and Associates Collection Agency, otherwise known as the Great American Silver Company. And it also is the Magellan Art Galleries on Peachtree Road in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a front for the assassination teams, gun-running, terrorism, and narcotic traffic. Funds for Congressman Larry McDonald come through the Magellan Art Gallery. And Watson signed some testimony that uh, the syndicate owns this combine. They steal electronic equipment and components and send them around the world and get paid in gold bullion, and they're involved in Chile, Peru, Southeast Asia, Costa Rica, and so forth. There's a narcotics traffic, gun running. But the assassination team, uh, we're talking about killing Martin Luther King in uh, March of 1968, a week before King was murdered. And he overheard this. He was working in the gallery. And one of the people he worked with is a Dr. Anthony Malik from Beirut, Lebanon who works with the Arab terrorists who help fund the Black September group, the assassination teams, again, that have been terrorizing Europe and recently have been linked to Frank Turpel, George Kerkola, the CIA, and uh, they're very active in Lebanon. In fact, their name was in the news recently in connections with links to Billy Carter and the Atlanta-Georgia connections. They laughed. At, uh, this is the testimony and affidavit he filed in 1977. They laughed about the assassination of Robert Kennedy, it was real genius to make the American people believe that he was a crazy misfit. And this is what they're trying to pass off now. They said Dr. Malik is part of the CIA and his associate is Dr. Habash working for the CIA over in Beirut, Lebanon, linked to Robert Vesco and the assassination teams. Now, the art galleries in Atlanta, Georgia, are the center for cocaine, narcotic traffic, and in 1977, he linked Senator John Tower to these assassination teams, and recently I did radio tapes and broadcasts of Tower being the brother-in-law. His wife's uh, brother is Samuel Cummings in London, who works with the assassination teams and supplies weapons for Frank Turpel and George Corcola. So the Tower's name, Atlanta, Georgia, and the uh, area, DeKalb County, is where this Jesus freak, this person who turned against John Lennon, in 1973-74 was going to school in this exact area of DeKalb County for 18 months. And then Mark David Chapman was sent to Beirut, Lebanon. And the art gallery group had their headquarters for assassination teams all over the world. But one of their big places was Beirut, Lebanon. So it would be perfectly logical in 1973 
if uh, they were getting ready, this is at the height of Watergate, and the Nixon administration is going to fall down. Ronald Reagan was the selected heir to the White House. I had published that in 1972. So you had this team active in Georgia, active in DeKalb County, where Chapman was, active in Beirut, Lebanon, heavily financed, and also they bragged about their weapon training. They, they had affidavits that Byron Watson signed saying that they trained with guns, that they had places where they learned to shoot all over the country. And this is why I say that uh, this Chapman fellow could have learned that military stance very easily here. In 1977, Watson wrote that Herman Ballard, alias Herman Jackson, told him about paramilitary arms. We have arms and munitions in every state. You can personally visit a hidden practice range and become familiar with the use of automatic weapons, machine guns, grenades, just in case commies or niggers get out of hand. So the art galleries were a place of meeting of assassination teams. And Watson wrote at the time that the syndicate visited these places, and they took members out for lessons. They would blow somebody's head off and have them watch so they could illustrate how they better keep quiet or they'd get their own heads blown off. Brian Watson, Robert, went down to Chile then, visited with these people. He was doing narcotics traffic and then got caught and served time, and that's why he had these court affidavits. He claimed that they were locking him up because he and his mother had gone to the White House in 1970 to give all the information of who killed Martin Luther King and who set the framework for the murder of King and framing James Earl Ray. Watson was down in Chile where he met Don Carlos Morales in San Diego, Chile. Uh, his nephew is the head of the DINA, D-I-N-A, the Chilean intelligence system. Morales is the second highest most official in the Nazi Chilean government. Watson wrote this in 1977. He's friendly with the highest officials of the CIA, including Richard Helms, the former director. And they're friendly with Walter Ralph. The U.S. Uh, friendship with his Nazi colonel has continued since World War II. And he told how they killed Salvador Allende and put in Pinochet. Uh, later, Jack Anderson has had articles about Operation Condor, the assassination teams coming out of Chile. And the people named by Watson, the Habash group out of uh, Chile, and there's George Habash and a Fuad Habash. He passed away recently. The one brother passed away. The other one is in Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, this Dr. Malik was a friend of Habash and brought this Watson fellow who wrote this article. I have about 30 letters from Watson about this. It came out. He was writing to me continuously from about... 1965 to 1968, and then I never heard from him again, and I called another friend in New York this week to see if he heard about him, and he never heard from him again, so I don't know where he is. But uh, just this year, October 22nd, 1980, Jack Anderson was writing about mercenaries, the CIA, Dr. George Habash, and their headquarters are in Beirut, Lebanon, and schools for terror. So I don't see any reason why we can't ask the question. It's not necessarily so, but ask the question, uh, why if Spiro Agnew, the Defense Department, the Operation Chaos, were so against rock musicians and the rock culture, why couldn't we assume or look for the chain of command of this person, Mark David Chapman, being sent to Beirut after 17 months in DeKalb County, 
with these very people in this milieu of these people. Because it's these people that are the fundamentalists that have been linked to the assassination teams and Ronald Reagan. And that is one reason I felt so sure that I could say November the 2nd, just a month ago, that when Reagan comes in, it's going to be hard on the rock musicians. Everyone around him and the assassination teams, as I said before, has moved into place. And uh, we have to follow these routes. Another link to Beirut, Lebanon, was an article that I mentioned on other tapes from the Washington Post this in December, uh, The Mysterious Connections of John Ellsworth. Now, that's an agent that worked for the Secret Service, the FBI, Internal Revenue, Drug Enforcement, the CIA, the Organized Crime Strike Force in the Eastern District of New York. He was at Aldemont putting down the hippies and the rock musicians at the time of the stabbing of Meredith when that movie was made. I've talked about Helter Shelter, give me Helter Skelter, give me shelter, the era of from the Beatles to Aldemont. Well, Ellsworth was very much involved with the filming of the movie Give Me Shelter. He worked for the federal agents. He was involved with narcotic traffic of the CIA in Beirut, Lebanon. All of that was published in the Washington Post. So the connections of the anti-rock group of the government agencies in Beirut is printed in the Washington Post just a year ago, and the patterns of this particular character come through there. Now, as far as the mind control, he had that glassy stare. He had that glazed look we've heard about in every one of these political assassinations. And uh, yet no explanation of where he got that look or what places he went to. And as I say, there's missing years, the uh, six months in Beirut, what he was doing at Lookout Mountain in Tennessee, the first wife. The woman uh, in most of these cases is the control agent, and Hawaii is a center of mind control programs. Uh, the story of these apparent wackos doesn't hold up to the actual mental state of these people. The news media tells us they're depressed, they have unhappy love affairs, and so forth, and yet you find the wife arranging his uh, trip through a travel agency around the world, the wife uh, sending him money for the trips to New York, buying him the art gallery pictures. It could have been too bad a marriage, and the women stay in the background. We don't have anything on the background of Mark David Chapman's wife. I got a letter in 1974, that's six years ago, from Ed Sanders. He wrote the book, The Family, about the Manson family, and he knew that I was interested in the mind control centers of the CIA, specifically in Hawaii, because Herbert Mullen in San Francisco had done some mass murders here in this state, and Mullen had, uh, was working at the Holiday Inn, and then he met a woman much older than him, and against his family's wishes, he flew to Hawaii, and he was committed the next day to a hospital controlled by the Army. And Lawrence Kwong, a fellow who shot the, into the window at KGO when Jim Dunbar was on the air years a few years ago, uh, then walked down the street and committed suicide. He was taken to Hawaii by a woman and then brought back to San Francisco with mysterious uh, uh, gun put in his hand. He was supposed to be in a mental hospital, but the gun was unregistered, and they didn't know where he got it. And he went to a private detective many, many times and said he's been programmed with electrodes, and he's directed to this radio station. And uh, he couldn't control himself, and the detective hardly knew what he was talking about and didn't want to believe it. So uh, he, he went inside the office and shot Ben Munson 
then went down the street and killed himself. But he was taken to Hawaii. Uh, Mullen was there, and uh, there was even a hint that John Frazier was there. There wasn't any proof that he was. That was another California mass murder. But Mullen and Lawrence Kwong were taken there. So I got in touch with Ed Sanders, and he wrote to me. This was six years ago. And he said he would send me a resume of Herbert Mullen in Hawaii the summer of 19. Uh, this was early. This is way before uh, these other uh, stories were breaking. It was at the time of the Baspers in Santa Cruz, around 1973 or so. He said uh, he's gotten many papers. Mullen was first institutionalized in Mendocino State Hospital in 1968 and 69. Well, someday I'll have to get a computer and put these through. Jim Jones was trained with mind control down in Brazil at Belo Horizonte with the CIA and then came up to Mendocino and had hospitals and training places. Uh, I'll have to overlap the years. It was 1960 when Jones was in Brazil and 73 when he got the property in Guyana. But he did have uh, mental and physical facilities up in Mendocino in this time period. And Tim Stone was the head of the grand jury. He was a, a DA up there. Jim Jones was on the grand jury and Tim Stone was a part of the DA's office from Stanford. Uh, Mullen was institutionalized in Mendocino. He became a completely different person. And this, uh, what I'm reading, are parts of documents and letters that Ed Sanders sent to me. He became a completely different person. He said uh, you wouldn't even know who he was. And in it was early 1970. He went to Hawaii with a woman named Patricia Brown. She said that she had to take him to Hawaii and uh, there was part of a Christian community, a church group, that they stayed in, according to Ed Sanders. And the minute he got into Hawaii, he was put in the hospital the next day. The family didn't trust her, but they said it was some kind of a religious thing, a convent or something there. And they picked him up, and he was plunked into this place in uh, psychiatric treatment over on the island. Uh, he has thousands of documents on the Mullen case, and I never have gotten a hold of those. Sanders is back east, and I haven't been able to get a hold of them. But he mentioned the uh, taking of these people to the Hawaiian Islands for this mind control kind of thing. At, he names the hospitals in Hawaii and the company of a woman. Uh, the most famous or most outrageous case of a woman is Leonard Keeley, K-I-L-L-E, that I've talked about on tapes before. Uh, her husband, the wife of Leonard, committed him to a hospital in Boston for the purpose of experimenting and implanting electrodes on an imaginative normal brain. He was the original inventor of the land camera. They took his invention away from him, and it became known as the great Polaroid land camera. They reduced him practically to an animal status where he couldn't think or talk. And when he sued the federal government and the doctors for implanting these electrodes, even in his court hearings a couple of years ago, they had to put waste baskets over his head because the electrodes were so strong in the room. They can't remove them. They're still implanted. But his wife delivered him to this psychosurgery and then married the man that she was living with before they put him in the hospital. So uh, there is a lot of information about Mullen that Ed Sanders have. I do have one letter he sent me from the state of Hawaii, Department of Health, Maui Mental Health Service, 121 Mahalani Street, dated June 26, 1973. 
And this is just the time that Mark David Chapman was graduating from high school and staying in an area that was very much involved with counterintelligence, experimentation, and assassination teams. Mr. Mullen was treated here as an outpatient from June 26, 1970 to July 10th. He reported he arrived in Maui June the 25th and sought voluntary admission the following day and was put in a psychotherapy group with the health clinic. And this is a report about his arriving and being given LSD and other drugs. And he had a desire, according to the state of Hawaii, to spread nonviolence. And they started administering Thorazine and uh, Stelazine to him. Uh, his desire in the medical report or signed by the clinical psychologist was for nonviolence. And uh, it tells about his being admitted into the place and uh, later administering other drugs. I do have one um, area of research that was sent directly from Hawaii to Ed Sanders, and uh, the chronology is interesting. The way the family didn't want him to go, he went, and the next day he was slapped into a hospital. That's why I say the chronology of Chapman going to Hawaii, we don't know who met him there. He had a wife. We don't know anything about her, whether she worked with the CIA, whether she was like Leonard Keeley's wife, whether she's like the woman that said uh, this poor Mullen over to Hawaii, or the woman that was with Lawrence Kwong, the pattern, the similarity runs through all of these various conspiracies, and all you have to do is change the name and the dates, and you find uh, that the modus operandi remains the same. In 1973, there was an article here in California, uh, Mental Hospitals versus Patients Who Are Doing Killing, and it says... 74 people have been killed in California the last couple of years by patients. Edmund Kemper, 8, Mr. Mullen, 10 or more, Juan Corona, 25, Oda Case, uh, John Frazier charged with 5, the Manson family, 5 deaths. In Houston, Texas, there was a ring of uh, homosexuals and deaths, bodies being shipped to California, 27. Now we have the Stranglers, the Freeway Killers, uh, DeSavio, the Boston Strangler, Jim Jones, David Berkowitz. The common denominator with all of these mass murders, there may be more mass murders, but the common denominator is that they all had links to the federal government, to the local police department. I do want to do one whole evening on the Strangler in Los Angeles, the links to the CIA, the FBI, and the local police department. Well, what is the motive behind all of this? We don't have time tonight to go into the motive or the modus operandi of mind control. But there is a reason for it. There is a good reason. It's documented. If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. If I read it to you, it sounds impossible. In the long run, the purpose to erase memories and to make people not responsible for their behavior is that the Earth, in essence, is overpopulated and that the NASA space agencies, along with people from Nazi Germany who came to this country, designed a way to eliminate people. But in order to eliminate them, you have to control their minds to accept this process, and you have to create certain patsies to wipe out those political leaders who would be opposed to this kind of genocide. I have a book called The Domesday Dictionary, taken after the Doomsday uh, Dictionary written by three uh, psychologists and social workers that came out in 1963. And they talk about manned space stations that I'll go into later. They talk about siphoning the world population out. 
and the people working on the space stations right now talk about the necessity to genetically mutate and alter minds in order to make this feasible. If there's only a limited amount of the Earth's resources and there's too many people to bother to educate or house or uh, employ, if robots will do it, there has to be an alternative way to handle it. I've quoted on the air many times the quotations of Dr. Jose Delgado, who works with these assassination teams very, very closely and with Ronald Reagan's team and the far right. And the direct quote in general, I just... uh, give you an idea of what it is. He says, man does not have the right to have the power of his own mind. Delgado has perfected the electrode implants and so forth because he doesn't believe in today's society that you know what is good for mankind, that there has to be an alternate way, whether they insert transponders into you or whatever, to control you. Now, there's some people that don't agree with Dr. Delgado. I don't think John Kennedy would agree. I don't think Malcolm X would agree. I don't think uh, Martin Luther King would agree or Robert Kennedy would agree. I don't think John Lennon would agree. And I don't think there are many, very many people left who care that much about society, who have the guts to stand up and uh, point their finger at these people and accuse them of altering our life to become mechanical. John Lennon was one of these people who illustrated that their way was wrong and give peace a chance. Wars eliminate population. They also increase weapon systems. The chapter on Mark David Chapman is far from closed. More people are instantly working on this than they did a John Kennedy case of the other assassinations. A lot of people are angry. I appreciate your calls during the week. I'm getting flooded with letters. Uh, People are hurt. They're concerned. And maybe this is what they needed to shake them out of a certain lethargy and realize that uh, it's out there. These assassination teams are perfected. They work. They got their coverage story going. So if they can put it over on us one more time, they'll try it. And it's up to us to say we've had enough. And if you've had enough, just keep listening to KLRB, and we'll try to show the patterns of these crooks, thieves, and murderers as we go along. This is Mae Russell in Carmel, California, and you take care. Till next week. There are places I remember. Stop and think about them
This has been World Watchers International with noted conspiracy investigator Mae Brussel. This program originates from Carmel, California. It's time now for World Watchers International with Mae Brussel, who for over 17 years has investigated and exposed political conspiracies worldwide. World Watchers International originates at KLRB, Carmel, California. Here's Mae. Good evening. This is Mae Brussel in Carmel, California, December the 28th, 1980, and this is broadcast number 473. I don't remember a time in the last 10 years that compared to the feeling that I'm having as this last Sunday broadcast on the end of 1980 is taking place and we go into 1981 with the specter of Ronald Reagan and the CIA cabinet vice president and officials of the government from the intelligence community moving into the White House. The only thing I can compare my feeling to at this time is the Despair I felt 10 years ago, and uh, I'll go into some more of the John Lennon murder, but I want to tie in the situation 10 years ago because it's been a continuous uh, pattern of America sliding downhill in the last 10 years. In 1970, I didn't feel like sending Christmas cards to my friends. I wasn't feeling jolly. And things were looking pretty bad in the world. So I decided to get out a small newspaper, about 12 pages, 14 pages, a little sheet, and send a 1,000 copies to every member of Congress and to presidents of universities and the major news media and the various researchers. And in that paper, I uh, had a column called Years of Sorrow and Despair. January 1970, 10 years ago, Richard Nixon was in the White House with John Mitchell, Spiro Agnew's vice president, and Robert Haldeman and John Ehrlichman and that gang around him. The Vietnam War was going strong. It was a year after Aldemont and the killing up there and the Gimme Shelter movie and the Charles Manson family, the counterintelligence operation blaming the hippies and the musicians for the violence that was going to come down. It was the January after the Chappaquiddick affair, which knocked Ted Kennedy out of any possibility in the White House race in 1972. It was one and a half years before Daniel Ellsberg published the Pentagon Papers and one and a half years before my first radio program on KLRB. Uh, I felt miserable. Uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X had all been murdered. So had Adlai Stevenson and Dog Hammarskjöld and Patrice Lumumba and all other people around them who were working on peace missions. So I wrote a column to various sections of our society in this uh, New Year's greeting that I sent out. First column was called Facts and Evidence of the Conspiracy that Killed John Kennedy and How It Would Haunt Our American Political System Until That Murder Was Solved. The next was a column on the age of specialization, going into private researchers like myself spending these years 
into a matter such as the Kennedy assassination because the Justice Department and the law enforcement agencies refused to do it. The third column was a New Year greeting to Richard Nixon, saying that his future was linked to the truth of the John Kennedy assassination and that his future was shaky if he didn't come up and uh, investigate more behind the murder and what he was doing in Dallas the night before and the morning that John Kennedy was murdered. Another column was called Coup d'etat for the Elite Bureaucrat, and I referred to the book by Edward Lutwak that I, re I mentioned a few weeks ago on KLRB, and I talked about the palace revolution that took place in the United States and the coup d'etat in Dallas that changed hands and government and referred to the think tank at George Washington University that is now behind Ronald Reagan. Another column was a blast at Lyndon Johnson and his appointed Warren Commission, and in there I mentioned Leon Jaworski, who went on to cover up the Korea Gate and the Senate Watergate hearings, and John J. McCloy, a member of the Warren Commission who set up the Seven Sisters Oil Combine that has raised our oil prices tremendously. He was official with the Chase Manhattan Bank. And I talked about the CIA and the assassination of John Kennedy and the Nazis that were protected by the Warren Commission, who were a major part of the assassination plans to kill the President of the United States. At a column, What Next? Senator Edward Kennedy accusing him of false liberalism and obstructing justice and truth. Another one, What for Congress in 1970, referring to their impotence and their inability to move one way or the other. Another column on the Is There a Democratic Party, on the sellout of the Democratic Party, making this a one-party system. Uh, nobody speaking up for the poor, for housing, employment, uh, civil rights, and so forth. That as of 1970, it would be downhill all the way with both parties looking alike. There was a column greeting to the news media regarding their major lies on all of the murders and the assassinations and printing remarks about Spiro, from Spiro Agnew uh, attacking the youth in this country who were trying to point out some of the problems with the Pentagon and our society, and Agnew was putting them down. There was a column called Best Wishes to All Blacks. In 1970, you will need it. And it warned about the increase of the Klan and the Nazis in this country. And from 1970 on down, their civil rights movement would be curtailed. And they would not have that mobility up the economic and social ladder they thought they would have. Another column, Good Luck to the Jews, Why Don't You Wake Up? And it had to do with articles of Drew Pearson on Nazis holding power in the United States and many quotations of the increase of Nazis in the United States. Then there was a section called Good Luck Hippies, You Will Need It, and it had to do with the use of LSD and mind control and the breaking of the youth anti-war movement, which so successfully was wrapped up with the murder of John Lennon to put the whole era in a package and bury it, or hopefully bury it once and for all. And then there was another column on the peace organizations and demonstrations for peace and uh, the role the Pentagon was taking against the protesters. And it's true, they were all photographed and uh, put into data banks and identified for future use. Then I had a section called Couples to Watch. One was Governor Claude Kirk of Florida and his contacts with Ronald Reagan 
Their policy is to break the University of California and their links to Nazis in the Wackenhut Corporation. One on Pope Paul VI, who was Montini, the Secretary of the Vatican, who had written passports for Nazis to go to South America and Shanghai and all over the world with H.L. Hunt. The couple of Svetlana Stalin and Marina Oswald, both working with the CIA to get their American citizenship and the links of Spiro Agnew with the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. And then concluding that uh, news sheet that I had written on the back, I had headlines from 1969, December, just at the end of the year, called Years of Sorrow and Despair. You read those headlines 10 years ago, and they don't sound much different than today. There's an Associated Press story, Jury Finds Incredible Misdeeds in High Places. Another story by Tom Wicker in the New York Times, Justice on Trial. Another uh, New York Times article, Klan Leader Vows New White Supremacy Drive. The New York Times, James Reston, Who Will Investigate the Investigators on Political and Military Life and the uh, Wrongdoing of the Pentagon? Another story, The Pentagon Accused of Tricking the Public. This is the Washington Post, December 1969. Another story by Roscoe and Jeffrey Drummond, December 1969, in the Washington Post, While the Nation Burns, Congress Fiddles. Another headline, Violence Cited as Internal Threat to America. This was December 15, 1969. And then a Washington AP story, A Worried Look at the U.S. Image. World Attitude Towards the United States at the Lowest Point in 50 Years. People Abroad Judge Us on the Basis of What We Do Rather Than What We Say. The Most Devastating Impact Came from the Assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King this year. Yale President Brewster uh, had a headline, Increased Manipulation by, of Society by the Power Blocks is Linked to Student Unrest. And he talks about the students at Yale uh, being put down by the power as they want to express their feelings about society and the war at that time. And finally, there was a uh, headline story, Quotations of C.P. Snow. Uh, this was in the New York Times, November 16, 1969, titled, A Very Sad Situation, The Sage Finds the World. C.P. Snow said, I have been nearer to despair this year in 1968 than ever in my life. Everything that has happened in public has pointed in the direction of anti-hope. In 1967, one could feel it in the air. This year, one can see it. If I make you depressed, forgive me, because it's the facts that are depressing you, not me. For a brief period, one can even put a date on it. From 1962 to 1965, there seemed a realistic chance. Now it has become remote. Everything that has happened in this dark year has pushed it further away. We are all selfish. Political memory lasts about a week. Political foresight stretches about another week ahead. To stint ourselves to avoid disaster in 20 years, what body of people would ever do it? Signed by C.P. Snow. And that is the way I closed my uh, brief news sheet that I sent out, as I say, a thousand copies. And that was my contribution to my country and my feelings at the end, or the beginning, rather, of 1970. Uh, the reason I read it tonight, for several reasons, is that same kind of despair 
that I feel ushering in the new year is present only it's 10 years later. And I see the young people uh, in terrible state of shock about John Lennon being murdered. And we talked three weeks ago about who would kill John Lennon, the motives for killing him, and the doubles and the, the machinery that sets in motion this type of assassination. And last week I gave you clues of the smoking gun in Georgia, Lebanon, Arkansas, Tennessee, Hawaii, uh, Switzerland, his trips around the world, his high finances, and his training with possible training in DeKalb County with the very people who killed John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. And I said this week I would talk about what can we do about it. But I noticed that, as a, a C.P. Snow said, political memory lasts one week. Political foresight stretches another week ahead. Now, he asked the question, who would ever spend uh, any time in anticipation of disaster 20 years ago? There are some researchers, like myself, who have worked for 17 years to avoid the things that we're going into now. The fact that our methods didn't work is because not enough people uh, participated or believed that the time invested would be useful. And when you ask me, and what can I do about the John Lennon uh, murder, the assassination, I have to ask you the question, how much time are you willing to invest? Are you willing to put the one week into it, uh, the syndrome of the wailing wall? The Jews used to have the great wailing wall syndrome. They'd stand against the wall and beat their heads and knuckles and cry. And it was only when they turned around and looked their adversaries in the face, because it was either then or the ovens again, that they were able to build any kind of a country or a weapon system for defense or a system to go in and uh, take hostages that have been uh, taken from them, airplane kidnappings and so forth. Israel built an army, for better or for worse, and it probably is the best in the world today, when they stopped crying and reappraised what it takes to survive in this world, to meet your adversaries eyeball to eyeball. I have ideas of what we can do or what you can do, and I'll share some of them with you, but how many of you really would spend 8 or 10 years or 12 years on a project to find the truth. I'm dealing with a bunch of older people who've done research for many years who are getting tired and depressed and have carried this burden a long time. And then the next jump is the pablum generation, the easy food, the quick open the jar and stuff their mouth, instant television with uh, seven-minute intervals of uh, commercials and solutions to problems within the half hour, the situation comedies, and the competition of all the various Farrah Fawcett's and the Bo Derricks. How can this generation concentrate enough? Will you be able to and are you willing to? If you ask, what can we do about the murder of John Lennon? I have to ask the question, how much time are you willing to invest into the project? How much hurt do you feel that being ripped off of 30 or 40 musicians if five of them were murdered as a cold-blooded plan, that's bad enough, as I've said before. If 20 of them were murdered, or uh, 40 of them, uh, heaven help us, because that many politicians and lawyers and witnesses to trials are being murdered simultaneously. And is this generation smart enough to be consistent, to not 
drop out of the battle? I really don't know. Uh, you ask me, what can you do? And I have to ask you these questions. Can you stay with it long enough? Can you give up a television movie? Could you give up a party if there was a meeting to discuss these things? Uh, somebody in town has offered a space to have discussions on what to do and to form groups. I've never worked with a body of people before for several reasons. One, the ratio of agents that infiltrate us is one agent for every five people. They're people that break up the meetings. You have to argue on divergent opinions. The decisions aren't made to the people who did all the research, but others come to argue with you, and the groups break up. I saw it many, many times in New York at the Elgin Theater, at colleges where I lectured, at small groups that wanted to come to solutions about assassinations. We had provocateurs. We had them in the GI Coffee House out in Seaside during the anti-war movement. We had them when we were fighting the Cambodian bombings or the Kent State meetings when we were opposing uh, those. Uh, every discussion group was infiltrated or broken up with people who wanted divergent attitudes projected into the room to break the discussion, and nobody went away satisfied and the groups broke up. Would you be psychologically secure enough to do research or to have discussion groups and have people in who agree with you and drop those people that don't have the same feelings as you. When you get into this kind of research, you not only invest your time, you have to be tough-skinned. You have to ferret out people that you think are negative. You have to take the opinion of people that you formerly liked who tell you you're crazy. You have to be willing to slough off relatives former friends, and all kinds of people to really get to the basic facts of survival and how to find out who is doing these murders. You have to invest time in reading and thinking, and you have to be secure in your own self. You can't take the opinions of other people or their definition of you or a diagnosis of your mental state as anything but their opinion. And most people aren't that secure. They want me to tell them how to do research and how to become politi politically active, but they're not secure enough in their own uh, selves to have people over and discuss these things or to not see any more people that don't want to discuss these things. I know myself that, that when I started working on the John Kennedy assassination, I had friends that I thought were liberal. I thought they were intelligent. I realized that they actually had Nazi mentalities and were very conservative and didn't really want to make changes in society or know who killed John Kennedy and later Robert Kennedy or Martin Luther King. They only acted uh, liberal on the surface, but when it was down to the push and shove, they wouldn't write to a public official, and they had every excuse there was in the books. They came out with kind of excuses. Well, you know... It really wouldn't be a conspiracy because too many people would be behind it. Uh, I'm sure the Justice Department and the Police Department will look into it. You know we can't fight City Hall. Uh, we'll never learn the truth of these matters. Uh, why couldn't a loner have killed John Kennedy or Robert Kennedy or Martin Luther King or John Lennon? Uh, don't you think that there are crazies out there? Uh, let the organizations do it for me. I'll send money to Philip Agee or the NAACP and let them find out who killed Martin Luther King. 
These are some of the arguments that intelligent people use as an excuse for their not having to invest time. They say, I don't have time to investigate the murders. There's too much to read. Uh, I'm all alone. I don't know anybody who shares my feelings. They're not willing to throw off those friends and family and take on people who agree to search further, but they prefer to be alone among a lot of people who don't want to know what's going on. Other people say, and rightfully so, that investigations brings surveillance and bugging and wiretapping and probably investigation by the IRS. That part is true. There are dangers in asking Snoopy questions, but there's also danger in not asking Snoopy questions because what wasn't asked 10 years ago didn't solve the problems. The headlines from 1969 sound just like nine and 1970 sound like 1980 only they're even worse because now we're economically in a depression we have inflation the home prices are out of reach there's rampant unemployment the whole series of peace people have been knocked out the musicians have been killed off uh, things are worse now the hostages have been held in iran and this country is at a stalemate Uranium and atomic weapons have been dispersed to many countries, Israel, Pakistan, South Africa, Argentina, uh, because those headlines were not taken seriously in 1970. We have worse headlines in 1980. My feeling has always been that if there's a danger in surveillance and wiretapping and my phone is tapped and my mail is opened, it's going to be worse later. What they're going into now is electronic mail where you send a letter and they transcribe it and deliver it in the next city. You don't have the privacy of your own mail. They don't want to return your own check stubs to you. They want to keep them for you and know where your money goes and who it goes to. So there are problems, but you have to ask yourself, how much do you want to put into discussion groups or meetings to really come to solutions of these problems? I know that uh, if television had been invented before the czars were kicked out in Russia, uh, the czars would still be in power today. And if the United States government, RCA, and General Electric had sent electricity and television to Vietnam prior to getting into the war in Southeast Asia, the North and South Vietnamese would belong to the United States and we wouldn't have had to spend any more money than television sets. We could have given them I Love Lucy all in the family and various situation comedies and kept them pacified. Now, this generation has its television, its TV guides, and its, as I say, its instant solutions and a choice for everybody. If you don't want 96 this year, you'll get 69 next year. It doesn't matter what they call it. Uh, they're tantalizing you with situations and stories that are diverting you from the really quiet, thought it takes with other people to solve uh, these crimes that I have done along with other people and other researchers. I know that by the Christmas cards I get and the messages I get that I have reached a lot of people in the past years, but I didn't just reach it because I thrashed around in a temper tantrum and said, I want to find out who killed John Kennedy. I sat many lonely hours for eight years just cross-filing the Warren Commission hearings before I realized the network and the framework of such political assassinations and that eight-year investment 
in that study taught me how to approach things like the murder of John Lennon and the other assassinations that followed after John Kennedy was killed. How many hours a week would you be willing to invest in your future for the next 10 years or 20 years that C.P. Snow uh, wrote about? Uh, there's 24 hours in a day times seven. I figure there's 168 hours you start out with. And all you need is seven hours sleep, which is 49 hours, which leaves you 119 hours. If you work eight hours a day, seven days a week, that would be 56 hours, and you're left with 63 hours. And you can do thinking uh, when you're driving, going to and from work. I even keep a tablet on the seat of the car. I listen to talk shows and have a pencil. Now, if I wait in line at the bank, I have a paperback book. Or if I wait at the cashier stand at the grocery store, I pull out a book and read a little bit, such as Reinhard Galen's books on espionage and the master spy. And if you spend 10 hours a week shopping and repairing, going to the shoe repair or the TV uh, shop to get parts or a tube or whatever you have to do, 10 hours of shopping a week, and you can't do much more with inflation or you'll be broke, that's still 53 hours left. And in those 53 hours, would you spend uh, five hours a week reading a book, writing to a public person, writing to the news media, to um, Barbara Walters, Walter Cronkite, Phil Donahue, and uh, your congressmen, your senators, and telling them what you know about these murders? Would you write to them and say, I want to investigate these program zombies. I want to do away with that insanity plea of the white-collar crime when public officials are killed, such as the Dan White, or in this case, John Lennon murder. I want to find the hospitals and doctors who treat these people. I'm talking about uh, Dennis Sweeney, who killed Alan Lowenstein, and the Charles Manson episodes in prison or in hospitals or the mind control of Sirhan Sirhan and the visits and the people they associated with, or this Mark David Chapman and uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. I could do a litany of mind-controlled zombies. Why don't we put these on a computer and see the names of the doctors who treat the same people like David Berkowitz and now this Chapman fellow who killed John Lennon? What about the IRS? Shouldn't they investigate the finances of the mothers, the brothers, the wives, who supply the money, the modus operandi that stay in the background, who aren't seen. Uh, Chapman's mother disappeared from Hawaii the day that John Lennon was killed. She'd given her son the money for the trip along with his wife. She works for Sears Roebuck. She hasn't been seen since. She helped buy his art collection worth thousands of dollars. Uh, would you write and ask to locate the missing evidence? The logbook that Chapman allegedly signed in Hawaii is missing. The album with his fingerprints that John Lennon allegedly signed is missing. Who had the coat thrown over their face the time John Lennon was killed? Why is the physical evidence missing? Would it all fit together, or did they have a patsy they were going to pull in and supply a false motive? Uh, again, going back to the doubles, where does all this missing evidence uh, evidence go to. And also, let's publish the passports of these people, uh, such as the SLA, Emily and William Harris and Angela Atwood, and uh, various people in these conspiracies. What countries do they go to? Sirhan, Sirhan, Lee Harvey Oswald, we know he's down in Mexico. 
and over in Europe with the Soviet Union and the Navy intelligence. But this Chapman fellow trips around the world, London, Switzerland. Where else did they go? Uh, what were their tax records? How much did they have making $4 an hour and living in a very expensive apartment with expensive art collections and so forth? Find the money, find the travels, find the hospitals and the doctors, and you pretty well can put together how these people are moved like robots by the intelligence community. But are you willing to spend 53 hours of the week out of that leisure time, uh, whatever else you do with those hours, uh, can you spend three or four hours a week? Uh, one hour listening to KLRB, one hour making writing for a insert with the references, the sources of information, a discussion group, maybe an hour and a half a week where you talk about these matters and decide who will write to which public officials or call talk shows, radio talk shows, and send letters to the editor. There are some very conservative people in town here that once every 30 days they send a letter to the editor. You see their names. That's how often you can write in. Maybe we should have a concerted letter-writing campaign where each one of us writes once a month with our views. I haven't sent many letters to the editor because I felt that my work on KLRB reached enough people, but there's some people that don't listen to KLRB who do read the newspaper, and maybe we should plan uh, ways to act or move to get this information out. There are all kinds of excuses for not doing research, and as I say, I've listed them, but there are all kinds of reasons why uh, this information should be disseminated. We can't hope too much on the young people. They're in college. They're out dating. They're worrying about uh, whether he loves her, whether she loves him, where they're going to get a job, whether they're going to go to school. The important thing about accumulating this information is that you can throw it to public officials and expect them to move. And if they don't, keep a record of your letters and later trace their activities and accuse them of covering this up. Letters should go to the Justice Department, to the New York Police Department. And if you're interested, I have a list of addresses where you can write and save your letters. And we can try to force people to become aware through letters and calls, uh, use this information, and be aware that these zombie robots are created for specific murders and that the murders could be solved once and for all when we get angry enough to demand that they be solved. This is the end of the first 30 minutes. I'm going to take a one-minute break and come back with you with some more ideas on the John Lennon and other murders. This concludes the first half of World Watchers International with Mae Brussel. We will return with the second half after a brief pause. Okay, this is part two, and uh, the summary or the conclusion on the John Lennon series, I'll be updating a lot of facts on the murder of John Lennon. Uh, there isn't much coming out now, but there's enough to do many broadcasts on that, and I'll be updating those in the weeks to come. Uh, but uh, again, the question of what are we going to do about the sum total of the murder of politicians and musicians specifically, just leave aside the others, judges, lawyers, and so forth. 
Walt Whitman once wrote, uh, there is an oracle current in the world that nations die by suicide. The sign of it is the decay of thought. Now, I, I can't really believe that this country is on that route. I believe there's a lot of people fighting back. Uh, if you write to me, I'll give you the address of a place to order uh, information or books specifically on the assassinations and on the interlocking links, the Nazi connections, the multinational connections, the mind control books that are available now. Uh, mind control is one of the most important subjects and has always been of interest to me since 1967, at least, the role of the government in mind control. When murders take place, such as John Lennon's or uh, other political assassinations, Alan Lowenstein or uh, the shooting, Jack Ruby using his gun and shooting Lee Harvey Oswald or George Wallace shooting and so forth, there's an immediate scream for gun control. And gun control is very controversial. And right away, people want to take the guns off the streets or out of the homes. And this is the way the liberal, the so-called liberal, reacts Let's get the guns. Let's have gun control. Uh, as soon as John Lennon was killed, there were people from the station here at KLRB and from the local community who met in a bar in town and had a party, and the money was to go to a lobby to fight gun control. Well, the gun control issue isn't as important as mind control. If people would use that money to force the congressman uh, to write letters to force them in the Justice Department to expose the mind control programs at UCLA, at Boston Hospital, at Vacaville, and all over this country, and Hawaii, as I mentioned last week, and these mind control centers. Our energy really should be used to study mind control because uh, through weapons, uh, you get these assassinations, but the assassinations are covered up because the assassin has been programmed both to kill and to kill himself. One of the best examples is that book, The Control of Candy Jones, which is still available. And she tells how the CIA trained her to kill, how, not to kill, but to kill herself. They, they want her to commit suicide, and her husband saved her from that. But they trained her to hate blacks and hate Jews and Italians because they smell I've referred to this many times on my radio tapes. The CIA, with our tax dollars, trains people who have no hatred to hate. So they can train you to hate John Lennon or train you to become a racist. And under torture, which she went under, she didn't break her mind control. And she can pick up a telephone and get instructions and pick up a phone and be told to go to Paradise Island and jump into this a shallow coral reef and kill herself. Luckily, as I say, her husband began to deprogram her and she didn't die and she wrote a book about it. But this is a time bomb because as long as we have robots who are trained killers, nobody is safe. There will always be guns because private security guards such as Thane Caesar, our personal security guard set out by Lockheed, and he was the man who fired behind Robert Kennedy's head, at one inch from the head, and got three fatal bullets into Robert Kennedy. Uh, the security guard system has increased about 200%, I read in a New York newspaper that somebody sent me since John Lennon 
was killed, and Ringo has a security guard, and Elton John in London has a guard, and people are very nervous and have hired guards. Well, security guards have been part of the conspiracy. The, the Secret Service didn't protect John Kennedy. They didn't look in the windows or the buildings, and they made all the major errors of some oil people and far-right-wing people meeting and deciding the route instead of the Secret Service deciding the route. So the murders are never going to stop by uh, taking guns away because the security guards who protect these people know when they go in and out of buildings and when they come home. And if they're sitting in a car and the person that they want dead is in, whether they're making a record or doing a concert and so forth, the security guard can be part of the conspiracy. I don't know where the guards were at the Dakota when John Lennon got off. Uh, somebody saw this man in this military stance, but nobody speaks up to say who it was who saw him empty these bullets into John Lennon. They said he stood out there for three days, but why didn't anybody call to protect John Lennon? He owns various apartments in that building, and if a man was seen lurching around for three days, the security guard at the Dakota would be the one to call. And he, of course, is armed, but I'm sure he's armed. But the point is security guards aren't the people you trust, and they have the weapons. Even this Chapman, uh, Mark David Chapman, was a security guard in Hawaii, and he took lessons in Georgia on how to shoot and how to be a security guard. So guns aren't the problem. Gun control isn't the answer. Mind control is the problem. Even in Jonestown, there are approximately over 100 people who were involved in the murder of 909 people in Jonestown, and before the House Foreign Relations Committee, there was testimony that they were trained assassins. And nobody has asked where these assassins are, where they went to, what countries they went to, or identified them by name so we could be on the alert for them. So that many killers are out, and being as Jonestown had all the drugs for mind control and all the weapons and narcotics and millions of dollars that they needed, these people are still heavily financed and will be useful in killing someday. I uh, now to the subject of what we can do if you're really interested. Um, several years ago, I changed the name of this program from Dialogue Conspiracy to World Watchers. It used to be Dialogue Conspiracy, as many of you know. I've been a Weight Watcher on and off for years. Uh, I lose weight, and then I put it back on, and then I lose it, and I go to the meetings. And all of a sudden, I realized the way that uh, Weight Watchers operated when Jean Nadich started it. She was overweight and went to New York Hospital and got a diet. And she found it was easier to use their diet and have 10 people in her living room than to do it alone. So they would get together and decide what food was legal. Uh, they'd watch their fat uh, fall off, go off, or if they stayed the same, they helped each other and gave support. But each one of the women in the group who lost 20 or 30 pounds and had learned how to weigh the food and how to measure it to take care of her own health and safety, then became the leader for another group. And several years ago, she sold the franchise for $26 million. And I thought of all the work that I'd put in the research for so many years, uh, it's been how many years since John Kennedy was murdered, and out of those years, maybe six people had ever contributed in terms of books, filing cabinets, and money uh, for copying machine. And very few people have ever 
put anything back into the research for me or for other researchers for printing material and so forth, or postage stamps or long-distance telephone calls and all the expenses incurred. We put money out, but we don't. Uh, there's no money coming in. So I got the idea that maybe we should be world watchers, that we should have discussion groups, and maybe I should take 10 people and uh, discuss with them the situation, the books to read, uh, suggested people to write to, have a meeting. Uh, Weight Watchers is $5 a week to go to a meeting to watch your own fat go away. Um, Maybe the price of a tape cassette, or if you live in town here, you can tape it yourself, and it wouldn't cost you anything. And bring the tape to the meeting and invest an hour and a half a week. That's what they do. And they sit and talk about whether it's summer squash or banana squash or, or half a banana versus a whole banana and for their own welfare and to take control of their own lives, they get together to discuss what is healthy for them. So I thought maybe someday uh, as a world watcher, if I took 10 people that wanted to invest the time and energy, I would discuss with them and have meetings, just as Jean did with the other women that came to her, about what is going on in the world, the sources of information. And then when those 10 people have gone, say, 16 weeks and understand the process behind the assassinations, the way they're covered up and so forth, they could become leaders and get 10 more people in their group. And that would, within a short time, you would have 100 people writing to congressmen, writing to the news media, calling attention to new evidence, writing to the Justice Department, the police departments, and so forth. In other words, we'd write to Tom Brockow or Jane Pauley and tell these people, or Jack Anderson, why are you covering this? Why are you lying? Why don't you investigate this? Here is this lead. And we would tell them, just based upon information that we receive through the normal channels of the news media, what we expect instead of them telling us what they want us to know. Uh, one of the scary things that was in the news last week was an article uh, by Cronkite. It's about Mr. Cronkite that he's going to have instant history lessons. It's an article by Fred Hessinger from the New York Times. Instant history lessons by Cronkite, his exciting plan. And he tells how when certain events come down, they can reach for a computer or a compressed obituary of a person or if something, if the Soviet troops go into Afghanistan, you get an instant history of Afghanistan. Now, this is called the Satellite Education Services put up by the Rockefeller and the Sloan Foundations. They've underwritten the production of pilot programs and they're beginning for the Los Angeles Public Broadcasting Station. Now, this is scary because these programs will go into Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Boston, and Washington, and they're going to blanket the school system with instant education. They'll tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald shot John Kennedy when there was no physical proof that he even held a gun, no fingerprints, no witnesses. They'll say James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King. James Earl Ray came out with an article in the Tennessee newspaper this week that um, Ben Jones published in his newsletter on the links of the assassins of Martin Luther King to narcotics traffic and organized crime. I talked about that last week. Those same connections you'll find were behind the John Lennon murder. 
And Ray names these people, and these people he names are directly linked to Reverend Hargis and the Christian Crusade and the people that hated John Lennon for his Jesus remarks and hate rock music. So um, the instant history lessons that the Rockefeller and Sloan Foundations are going to put out will negate what the researchers are doing. It will deny the truth about who killed Robert Kennedy. They'll say that Sirhan Sirhan did it and leave out Thane Caesar. And if a country is invaded, they'll give a reason that is not true, such as the history of World War II when Hitler said that the Polish were causing the confrontations and actually it came out that Hitler had Germans dressed as Poles that created the excuse in 1939 for Hitler to invade uh, Poland or the Gulf of Tonkin incident that uh, Lyndon Johnson used to escalate the Vietnam War when it actually was the radar on our machines. Cronkite has been trusted by the American people. He is a pathological liar who tells you one-tenth of the truth or one-hundredth of it. So at a time when the Rockefeller and Sloan Foundations and the school systems want to use Cronkite's capsules it's more important than ever that we hold on to our truths and fight for them and know them, and that involves study. If I invested 17 years to protect the next 20 years, some of you are going to have to make that same investment, and maybe it takes the, the time of the meetings. As I say, maybe we should meet uh, an hour and a half a week. I'll give up the time. If you are willing, I, as I say, know of a place that's been offered to us. But, of course, again, you have to screen out those people that are sincere. This may be a ruthless thing to do when you're on the air. You're open to all kinds of people uh, coming in that may want to come. We need people that are solid in the community, that have been here a long time, people that have followed various uh, exposés and been activists at one time, or uh, people who are established. They have to have a phone number or an address, not an unlisted number, and they can't take off for trips uh, back and forth to different countries and cities with no noticeable means of support. They can't be divisive. I never went to a Weight Watchers meeting and argued that I could drink whole milk when they said skim milk. Uh, there were certain restrictions on losing weight, and there are certain restrictions on gaining information and anybody who would be divisive if we get a group together is disinvited, right, that they can't come back. We don't have the time or energy to handle divisiveness. I can turn you on to information. The newspapers uh, have listed address, and for those of you who get the tapes, I'll include them in this week's flyer of the press relations offices in New York of ABC or NBC News or the CBS Television or Public Broadcasting Service, or the address of the House Subcommittee on Communications, or the Senate Subcommittee on Communications. And our local newspapers have the addresses of our Congressman Leon Panetta, or Senator Alan Cranston, or uh, Senator Hayakawa. Uh, the addresses of public officials are always available. All you have to do is go to a who's who in the library, and I buy them at used book sales. Almost every well-known person is listed there. And what we have to do is flood them with letters and information and express our outrage. And sometime, maybe public officials 
will have shared our feelings but not have known which way to turn. People like Leonard Bernstein, who spoke up uh, on the anniversary of Kennedy's death this year at the publishing party and uh, reminded people of that terrible tragedy and how it was covered up. I am willing to meet with some of you to start a group if you want it. I have not done it before. Uh, I found that the anti-war movements were very dispersed. The wealth, the um, groups on the peninsula were too divided and not active enough. They settled for too little and they disbanded too fast. Uh, when they thought the war was over, they broke up. I never did think that the war was over and continued constantly at doing my research. You can write to me at Box 22511, Carmel 93922, if you are interested in having a discussion group. Don't write to the station, because I only come here uh, once a week on Sunday nights. But I do have a P.O. box, and if you can't remember that, you can write to my home and give your name and your telephone number. And if you're interested in discussion groups, I will get back to you. Uh, information is power, but our ability to disseminate information is going to decrease when Ronald Reagan is in office. There's a new book out called How Western Culture Dominates the World by Anthony Smith, put out in London by Oxford Press. Uh, it's describing the pressure on the third world countries who depend upon the Associated Press, United Press, Reuters and other news media in France, and that the satellites are taking over all the information so that they're going to be squeezed out of the information flow. And where the third world felt that they had some chance after the 60s or during the 60s to break colonialism, they feel more desperate now than ever. And also, this book describes the use of communications to control major companies, the mail of major companies, of radio and television stations, to control the news, to analyze weather, to size up harvests or troop movements or mineral deposits. And this book describes something that I've known for a long time, that satellites can tell mineral deposits, undiscovered mineral deposits in countries that the very government is unaware of its existence. You can see it through the satellites. Then the United States engineers a coup and puts into office those people that will guarantee are getting the uranium or the bauxite or whatever it is. The satellite tells us, because we have the technology, where schools of fish are, where oil reserves are, where minerals are, and the third world is left out of it, and the messages can be disseminated to the major corporations, the IBM company and others, and leave those other people out of the communication network. This is a book on the geopolitics of information. When computers take over, the important thing is that they're run by people and that people have to hold on and fight for their history. They can't let go of it, and therefore it's more important now to learn the facts of the way the government was taken over in 1963 to learn the facts of who killed John Kennedy or Robert Kennedy or John Lennon. And there is no way to do this except by meeting together and talking. Uh, there are no plays or television or movies, the diversionary kind of movies. Some movies are very good, like the Tin Drum, and I saw some good movies this year. But the diversionary fun things 
ought to be put aside if you really realize the crisis in your freedoms that's going to be coming down in a short while. One of my favorite uh, sections of the Bible is in Ecclesiastes, uh, the seasons and the time for every purpose. But somehow or other, what was written then is perverted or turned around. People don't allow us the luxury of the time that is appropriate to behave in certain ways. Our instant communications, our instant satellite, whether it's the television or entertainment industry, our instant news that solves murders within 12 hours deprives us of the right to know how to function. I have the headlines of when John Lennon was killed. He was killed 11 o'clock on the 8th of December, and the morning newspaper on the 9th had solved it. One headline says, ex-mental patient killed John Lennon. Another one says, a wacko, a lone wacko killed John Lennon. Um, there, another one says, a man with a mental problem who identified who wanted to be John Lennon but tried suicide by killing Lennon. He killed the Lennon in himself. Uh, these instant solutions within uh, 12 hours when most of the world was asleep and most of these newsmen didn't wake up till morning, they had to be writing their stories in their sleep. They deprive us of the right to figure things out. In Ecclesiastes, the way this uh, particular section goes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die. Too many of these public officials are dying too young. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. We don't have time to pluck up what is planted. It is trampled on the visions or the dreams or the hope of getting along together. The anti-war period, the kids in San Francisco, the digger movement, they weren't allowed the luxury. Drugs were thrown in. They were poisoned. Their minds were blown. They weren't allowed to see the fruit of their effort of getting together. A time to kill and a time to heal. We don't have time to heal anymore. Before uh, one killing is over, another killing takes place. Uh, Whambo, if it isn't Jonestown, it's John Lennon. And before that, it's Pope John Paul I. And there was the Nelson Rockefeller murder. There's a series of deaths. John Paisley, uh, problems to solve done by the same people. We don't even have time to heal before the other murders come. A time to break down any time to build up. We're denied the right to build. We can't save money to live on. We can't uh, plan for the future. We're afraid of 1984, the electronic boss. Uh, Reagan's going to step up the CIA. How can you build? And Ecclesiastes says, a time to weep and a time to laugh. If you laugh today, it's going to be, as Dylan said, a hard rain's going to fall. There's not much time to laugh because every time you feel gay, you have to weep. And a time to mourn and a time to dance. Uh, after John Lennon was killed, Yoko said, I see him smiling up in the sky. And people got together for dances and we have our wakes and so forth, which are great. But there is too much mourning and there's too much dancing. And it's time that we even stop dancing and talk and let out our plans or feelings of where we're going to turn to confront these monsters. A time to cast away stones and a time 
to gather stones together. There isn't even time to gather them together. Togetherness is disrupted by so many uh, diversions, the entertainment, the hi-fi, again, the TV and so forth. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Uh, Hold close the people you love and embrace them and reject people who are not interested in your society. Throw them out, whether they're your brother, your relatives, not your parents. Only go forward. If people stand still, leave them. Some people will tread water all their lives. They never want to get to the other end. They just want to stay in the middle and their arms and legs go. Pass them up if you want to get to the other side, if you want to know the truth. A time to seek and a time to lose. We're all losers and we're losing too much. We've lost Janice Joplin and Jimmy Hendricks and Otis Redding and Jim Croce and the list goes on and on and Elvis Presley and John Lennon and more to follow as well as the politicians. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Uh, Keep your memories and cast away your false notions, your false heroes, your false leaders. Think for yourself. Don't let those phony Jerry Rubens pop up again or those Abby Hoffmans. Think alone. A time to rend and a time to sow and a time to keep silence and a time to speak. I kept silent all through my young adulthood and up through the 50s. I kept silent when Richard Nixon was framing Alger Hiss and when the Rosenbergs were prosecuted and given the electric chair and through the Cold War and the Hollywood Red Scare and the House Un-American Activity. When John Kennedy was killed, I spoke up. Someday you will find a moment where you will not want to be silent anymore and then speak and, if necessary, yell. A time to love and a time to hate. Define who you love and stay with people that want social progress and clean air and free the oceans of pollution and against the mob putting radioactivity into the waste sites and living with radiation and germs and diseases and poverty and scaring old people out of their savings and increased health plans. Love people that are pro-life and feel free to hate people that are digging your grave. And a time for war and a time for peace. It's going into 1981. We have to distinguish who we're going to make war with and who we're going to have peace with. And I hope, I really hope for you that you have a happy new year and that we work for peace, and that we work for it together, and know who our common enemy are, the destroyers of life, and work for positive things with people working for positive things, and stay away from the others because there isn't that much time to spread your time. Use your hours fruitfully, thoughtfully, and fight hard to survive. It won't be easy, but it'll be worth the struggle. This is Mae Brussel in Carmel, California, Have a good year. This has been World Watchers International with noted conspiracy investigator Mae Brussel. This program originates from Carmel, California.